welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, our first guest of the year is a returning guest. Ash, how's it going? Hello. Oh, I can't believe I'm the first guest of the year. That feels like such a, an honour um, or more likely a reflection of me um, <laughs> bad, badgering you <laughs> late last year. Um, did, did you about, badger me? I don't remember you badgering me. I, th- I, I, I think what happened was, I'm sure we'll get into this, there was a little bit of like, Sam, there's been far too many comments about Sega. It's time to <laughs> set the record straight. Yeah, and there's also just, um, I think the, the most disappointed contingent of our listeners are, are British people who like Sega and just hear us <laughs> either not understand it or not engage with it. The thing is, so me and Matthew both have a background with Sega consoles, but we don't have the the sort of multi-layered background. Like, you know, every, I think every kid kind of in the UK kind of had a Mega Drive, but, um, you know, we didn't have Sans yeah. or Dreamcast, so we've been letting people down. How's that been uh, How's that been from the outside looking in, Ash, to hear that going down? It is. It, I am one of those British Sega fans who's been a, a little bit frustrated about the commentary. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's really weird. Like, in, in the games industry, I'm often labelled as a Nintendo fanboy. And, you know, for understandable reasons, I do love Nintendo used to review all of the Nintendo games when I was a journalist, worked at Nintendo. Um, and I keep saying to people, I'm not I'm not a Nintendo fanboy, I'm a Sega fanboy. They just haven't made a console for me in several decades. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, you know, I've been sitting here going, guys, like, please, like, please play Crazy Taxi again and you'll realise it probably is the best game ever made, I assure you. Oh, but uh, I like Crazy Taxi. I Maybe it's Matthew who's a bit more down. Uh, I can't no, remember, I just, but... I, I think it's... I think it's fine in short bursts. It's not a spicy take. There's only so much um, crazy taxi a man can have in his life. I think I think we'll get into that as well. But I think you know, say, Sega games. You know, they're you know they're from the arcades. Short short bursts is what yeah. it's all about, right? But for me, it's been a series of short bursts over about thirty or thirty-five years, and I've just I've kept coming back. And maybe other people haven't. You've been microdosing all these years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I sort of have these bursts of like going into a bunch of old Sega stuff that I've I've you know either not played or not thought about for a while. So I think actually it might even have been you who pointed me towards the mod you can get for Crazy Taxi on PC that adds oh, yeah. the offspring back into it. So um, yeah, and uh, yeah, so I I try and be engaged, um, you know, wherever I can. But uh, I do agree that it's something that we we do sort of fall down on. Actually, like the, the most. Sega commentary we've done was in one of our Excel episodes we did on um on 16-bit games which I think was actually quite a fun one but it was a little mm. bit um like two people who don't really know what they're doing that episode so uh <laughs> yeah fortunate to have you Ash. Ash I have to ask um when Sega revealed that spread mm. of whatever we're calling them remakes reboots whatever at, at the game game awards what was the what was the instant Ash take? Oh man! Um, I mean, obviously delighted, but then with a hint of kind of cautious optimism right. in there because you, you you never it doesn't really matter which video games company it is when 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 they're marketing a comeback. There's a, there's an element of risk there, isn't there? Like, do they understand what made these games great to begin with? Are they understandably going to try and layer in some mo- you know modernization mm. elements? Mm. Um, that's that's always a, a risk, and it, and it'd be a risk not to do it as well. Like you, I, I don't think they can just fully replicate what was there before, and and everyone will be truly satisfied. So I'm just kind of waiting to see what they come up with. But mm. I am I am really excited, and I think um, it's you know it's nice for me to see Sega 
acknowledging their roots and acknowledging their their fan base. Mm. Um, if yeah, if you were in charge of that grand reboot project. Would you have included Golden Axe amongst them? <laughs> That's the thing I don't quite... Because I was looking at them, like, some of these I get, like, you still hear the chatter now, but is, is, it, is it really such a canonical thing that that, that would... that it, it gets gets an instant pass? <laughs> I, I know exactly what, what you mean, and there is something, in my opinion, a little bit bland about Golden Axe. However, I, I have a mate who I went to school with, and I play... Um, Xbox games with him every Wednesday night. We, we you know, play, we're playing Baldur's Gate three at the moment online. We have done for weeks, and like every couple of weeks up until last year, he was like, "When do you think they're going to make a new Golden Axe?" And he's been saying that for about six years. <laughs> uh, so there are these, you know, there are these people out there. I know them very well. Um, is that nostalgia? Does Golden Axe still have anything to offer? I don't know, but also I kind of, I kind of believe like you can take any concept and inject life into it um you know a, a good co-op scrolling beat em up with some, with some fresh ideas mm. um you know streets of rage 4 wasn't even made by sega and they absolutely smashed it knocked it out of the park in my opinion mm. so um let's see yeah mm. i don't know if, do people know who's making all those games that's the i think there's a bit think of ambiguity so. there yeah so yeah no idea about, about that which is interesting i assume they'll reveal that at some point but uh yeah, um, I have more to ask you about those um, those mm. uh, revivals, Ash, but I'll save that for the wider Sega discussion because I'd like to put that in a bit of context. So um, how are you doing generally anyway? How's uh, working game dev treating you these days? Um, well, it, I'm not going to drone on about 2023, but it was, I think it was a pretty dark year for, for most of the games industry. Um, so... Uh, if I if I'm optimistic about 2024, I just want to say I'm you know not taking it for granted uh, that uh, I feel like I'm in a pretty good situation right now. Um, if anyone doesn't know, I've been at Team 17 for I don't know six years, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, a company I loved very much as a kid and a teenager, um, so I've really enjoyed working there and in a really nice position where i'm helping indie game developers like bring you know bring their games to to life bring them to market um we've got some cool stuff this year most of which i can't talk about mm-hmm. um and i am oh the really frustrating thing is i'm working on a bit of a pet project that i can't talk about yet it's not announced mm. but i'd love to be able to talk about it because because when when i do w- and you know when we reveal this you guys are going to be like oh that is the most ash thing <laughs> ever <laughs> to be doing that um so i'll i'll leave it at that but um yeah suffice to say um exciting you, stuff are you getting a full torso worms tattoo is that a project <laughs> i oh my god that's really that's really funny because we um uh, our new group ceo um did a presentation to the entire company this week and he showed a worms tattoo as one of his uh slides uh not on his actual skin oh, right. he found it on the internet peter moore he style. Did, did, yeah. didn't do a peter moore no. <laughs> wow um I, my only guess is that you've made some kind of like indie chibi robo alike that's like the first thing that comes to mind is like what is the exact ash cross section <laughs> but if it's not that i hope it's a a Yu Suzuki in nineteen ninety nine style sort of like project that is like so ambitious it basically takes Team Seventeen out of the games industry. That's that's what I, wa- yeah. I, I want it to be. And we're gonna we're gonna sponsor Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Oh, that's exciting. So uh, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, Ash, 
I I was sort of alerted to how much you love Sega when I went on that trip with you. Um, when we uh, the famous oh, yeah. um, the we've got to talk game. about that, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Like it's come up a few times now, but I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast. But that trip, I was trying to remember all the games that were on that trip. So Sonic Unleashed mm. was on that trip, wasn't it? And yeah, that was our first encounter with Valkyria Chronicles as well, which I know you. Oh yeah, you were, that was a huge game for you, wasn't it? That game. Yeah. Um, and then was there a Bleach game on DS? And then maybe some kind of yeah. dinosaur game involving cards. So, and uh, yeah. And then and Yakuza 2, infamously. Yeah, we couldn't play Yakuza 2, even though it had released in Japan. But we got to interview <laughs> yeah. Nagoshi, and he was reading a magazine upside down, is my recollection. <laughs> he, he was he was reading a Swedish games magazine, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't read or speak Swedish. Mm. And uh, you were lucky to get a one-word answer to your interview questions. Uh, so I, I remember feeling pretty down about that. Because I was looking forward to you know meeting Mr. Monkeyball. Uh, one of my favourite games of all time. I was so excited, and then I, you know, I don't know what happened. We can only speculate. I, I suspect, you know, they were working on probably Yakuza Three. They'd done the, um, the kind of ancient Japan, um, like historical Yakuza Kenzan. by that point. Kenzan, yeah. So I, I suspect he, ju- he felt a little bit kind of cajoled into talking about something that for him was years ago and and not the most exciting thing maybe he just had a bad day i don't know what it was mm. um I, I i it's worth me telling my side of the story on on this one um Go do you remember the article i wrote about it when we got back uh i do is it like lead news in games tm <laughs> yeah um so yeah i was feeling really dejected about all of this and i remember you know when we were still in japan um, I went down for breakfast in the hotel the next day, and I was having breakfast with, I think he was a, a journalist from the Times, and I was telling him about all of this. I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, because I basically I can't get any content out of this interview, and this has been a really important trip for us. And, you know, he was a smart guy, and a, a, a more kind of roundly experienced journalist than than I was as, as a specialist and, and as you know someone in my 20s. And he said, look, you, you have got a story there. You've got a story about meeting your hero and, and he turns out to be a bit of a disappointment and he behaves like a jerk on the day. Like, you've you've got something really interesting to talk about there. I was like, oh, gosh, I'd like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would be allowed to write something like that in, in a video games magazine. And he gave, he gave me his business card and he went, well, if they don't let you, like, come and write it for the Times. I was like, what? really um and I, I i don't know how serious that offer was but i i i you know sat and thought about it on the plane journey home and i think imagine publishing had some rules about you, you can't write for other publications so it would have been super risky to do that but the idea was in my head so when i got back i wrote this like two-page news piece for for games tm kind of like don't meet your heroes sort of thing um and it caused quite a stir mm. uh, let me tell you uh, i don't think sega were particularly pleased um poor stefan <laughs> yeah poor poor Ste- yes poor stefan mcgarry who was the pr manager and who i count as as a very very good friend of mine mm. um i think um it, i think that probably put him in a pretty sticky situation having you know paid to fly a load of journalists out to japan for a few days which you know it was an awesome trip um I, and I don't know, you know, I saw some commentary online from a few readers and some readers thought it was, you know, really cool to, for a games magazine to do something that wasn't, you know, a, you know, a promotional piece, mm. uh, you know, so, quote unquote real journalism. 
and then i think there were some other people who were a bit like well you know how can how can you like have a go at this man he's he's a national treasure all this kind of stuff um i think in retrospect i'm i'm glad i did it because it was just it was a nice opportunity to tell an actual story in a games magazine rather than mm. a, you know traditional preview of, of a, a video game that is useful in the moment but but won't be interesting a decade later um mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, also yeah, bef- another life experience it's before that sort of stuff was captured on camera as well now you might have an awkward interview at like an e3 or something and be filming it but that just wasn't really the the time for that mm. so yeah um the funny thing is though that i don't know if you had this ash but that put me off the accuser games for no kidding yeah no kidding like uh, like more than a decade it wasn't until the pandemic happened i was like okay i will finally play yakuza zero and it was really good but i just all he had to do was give us more than nothing and he wouldn't Mm. do it that was the thing like it that's why i think in retrospect it was the right thing to do um even now you know but I, uh, I i would love to know if any of that got back to him if anybody gave him a bit of a a pep talk about how to do interviews in the future we'll never know because mm, he's done like a collected works in edge since then i think nathan brown did the interview and he seemed like he was really up for it and really game and that's obviously looking back so uh maybe it's just because nathan just seems cooler than the new ash which is which is a possibility <laughs> honestly uh but yeah um I, yeah. I do like the idea of an alternate timeline where there is now a sunday times front cover with yeah. negotiate <laughs> jerk <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, yeah. Actually, I, I didn't. I don't think I knew all that stuff about the times. So that's, uh, that's good context. <laughs> so I suppose that leads us into what's your history with uh, Sega games, Ash? I, I was oh, kind man. of. Uh, I, I'd also been um, reading a few issues of uh, Retro Game in the last few years, and they do those. Is it like complete guides or whatever? The sort of like how much you pay per game. The collector's guide. That's thing, yeah. right. And you you tend to do a few of those, right? Because you are a big yeah. video game collector. And I think I read your Saturn one. Um, and that mm. maybe was that about two years ago something like that but oh yeah it would be yeah so um so yeah you 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 know so much about you know the hardware the software so what's the foundations of your interest there um well the mega drive was my first games console um i'd had a commodore 64 prior to that and that had like opened my eyes i you know used to go to the arcades all the time but the mega drive was just this like you know blow the doors off moment you've you've got these like really for the time you know, flashy, bombastic video games in your home. Um, you know, the, the the culture of Sega at the time, and I think, you know, quite a lot in the, in the Saturn and Dreamcast era as well, was about bringing that arcade experience into the home and then adding extra value, adding, like, console games on top of that. Um, the only reason I had a Mega Drive as opposed to a, a, a Nintendo um was it was more of an economical thing you know my you know it was quite expensive for my parents to buy a games console at the time and they asked me what do all of your friends at school have they all had mega drives i didn't know anyone who owned a snares and they were like right we'll get you a mega drive because then you can trade cartridges uh with people and and get a few more games that way because you know we were going from the c64 where a tape might cost you a couple of quid to cartridges which could be you know 20 to 50 pounds like really expensive for a working class family in those days um so you know there was there was no more kind of logic to it than that it was just an economical decision Mm. um but i i absolutely loved it i suspect i would have loved any console i was given at that point in my life but it just happened to be sega and it you know never really went away that love of sega that i you know i i didn't get 
on board with the Saturn straight away. Uh, you know, they, their marketing for the Saturn, um, you were lucky if you knew the console existed when it came out, to be honest. Like, everything was about PlayStation, as, as we all know. Um, but I did eventually get on board with Saturn. Um, it's, in terms of traditional games consoles, it remains my favourite games console of all time. Um, just that, that mix of pure arcade experiences, tons and tons of great arcade conversions, um, particularly if you had a Japanese Saturn where uh, more releases came out, it, it lasted longer, well, you know, well into the late 90s. Um, and then that rolled into the Dreamcast where um, the Dreamcast is, is, you know, you could you could write a book on the Dreamcast era, really interesting. It was like, you know, Sega, against all odds, just spending so much money on a console that was was like in the wrong place at the wrong time, like mm. du- doubling down on, uh, you know, not just arcade conversions, but arcade-like experiences at a time when, you know, Grand Theft Auto 3 and Metal Gear Solid 2 were, were rewriting the rules on PlayStation. Um, it was kind of like a console that felt like it was made for, for me and my mates and people like us, but we were a dying breed by then. So it was really strange to be, like, catered for, like, eating so well on this console, you know, Jet Set Radio, Space Channel 5, Res, all these amazing games coming out that... you. You know, even then, like, I couldn't fathom, like, how can they afford to do this? Like, how can they afford to make these amazing games that, that nobody's buying? It turns out they couldn't afford to, mm. <laughs> of course, uh, and, and the writing was on the wall for them. But how, how often in the history of the games industry do you, do you get these, like, an entire console and library of games that feels like a passion project? Like, it's not doesn't feel like it's made for the money it feels like it's made for the love of, of course that can't be true they you know a big global business um but i think i think that's why you know i think the dreamcast remains one of the most loved consoles of all time even mm. though it didn't sell lots of copies and I, and i think that's why just because of that really deep bench of um, you know, special imaginative games, lots of new IPs. They didn't, they didn't really lean too much on their like classic franchises in the Dreamcast era, which is something a little bit strange about you know the the kind of revival movement that Sega is having today. They're trying to recapture that Dreamcast feeling, but what of what made the Dreamcast feeling so great to begin with was it was new idea after new idea all the time. You know, Jet Set Radio, Crazy Taxi. Uh, Shenmue, uh, they were they were pushing the boundaries, uh, and now it's kind of a nostalgia piece. Um, that's an interesting thing, but that's that's probably a commentary about the games industry as a whole, mm. uh, to be honest. Right now, well, it's interesting though because I think, like you say, there's not really the sense of them chasing trends. Like whatever's happening mm. on PlayStation, it doesn't feel like they're living in the same reality as such. No. Like you say they're all these kind of like arcade adjacent experiences and that even counts for Shenmue right like it's you know mm. it's the, the combat is very arcadey obviously well know. well Shen, Shenmue started out life as virtual fighter RPG so I, I think it was like how do we take this arcade game and you know flesh it out and make it a longer single player experience that people want to play so yeah you're right it still had that 
that kind of fighting game system at the heart of it mm, okay interesting so i suppose like that that's like the sega experience in real time so mm. uh, what happens to sega after the dreamcast then because it seems like a lot of their <laughs> dna is spread out over the across the different yeah. console manufacturers so gamecube becomes the de facto sonic home uh you know like some of the some of the some dreamcast ports end up on ps2 the xbox seems to get a load of original um mm. sega games what what sort of do you think the strategy was after that it's an interesting time. I, re- I remember there, were, there was an Edge cover, um, really bold, and the cover line said, uh, Dreamcast is dead, long live Sega. Uh, one of the best cover lines of all time, in my opinion. Um, and it did, you know, I, I can only speculate to a certain extent, but I, I suspect, you know, moving from a hardware manufacturer to a third party would have been a huge calculated risk for Sega. And I suspect part of the strategy was just spreading their bets um you know all of their software had been on one platform the dreamcast that hadn't worked out well for them it wouldn't equally make sense to then go and say right we're you know we're just going to be a nintendo uh developer you like you you sw- you're swapping one silo for another mm. there um so i think it made sense to to do that explore those opportunities um i think partnering up with nintendo on on things like uh, f-zero gx um putting super monkey ball um on the platform really early made perfect sense i think sega were sega were a very different company to nintendo they were more kind of rock and roll compared to nintendo's pop but they you know they're adjacent they had the the color and the fun to to appeal to nintendo gamers particularly with with sonic um and then they always had this interesting relationship with microsoft like microsoft had collaborated with them on the the dreamcast it had you know supposedly powered by windows ce it had a little badge on the front of the console that said that um the you know the xbox controller it just is a dreamcast controller so you could see that synergy there i think you know the fact that xbox was online out of the box made it a natural successor to the dreamcast even if most of Sega's Xbox games weren't online. You can you can see that lineage. Uh, I think you can, I think you can see that um, a lot of Xbox personnel were you know either came from that Sega world or were big Sega fans. It was that was a, a fantastic time to be honest. I, uh, I I was really sad that the Dreamcast had ended, but that that creative energy that Sega had, it still continued, and they were still making awesome creative games mm. spread across all, all of this different hardware which of course i owned anyway because that's the sort of person i was uh yeah monkey ball was amazing the ps2 version of of res uh, arguably even better than the dreamcast version mm. uh, you, you get that trans vibrator adapter on the ps2 uh panzer dragoon Auto on xbox you know t- took that sega saturn series and just you know, took advantage of the Xbox power to look even more gorgeous and, and create these fantasy environments. Mm. Uh, they took Shenmue 2 to Xbox. Like, the list goes on and on. Like, that, that idea of, like, eating well, if you're a Sega fan, it still happened. Um, I think I think what's where things started to change was kind of a generation or two after that where it was, their focus was less about which console should we be on and more about which global market are we aiming at um sega seemed to become more kind of interested in the european market they started to invest in 
you know, European developers, Total War, Football Manager, games that, I'll, I'll be honest, don't really appeal to me very much and didn't feel very Sega to mm. me. That You know, they don't have that arcade quality, but clearly that worked out really well for them from a, a business perspective and uh, I think is one of the more um, kind of successful examples of a Japanese publisher you know reaching its arms out across across the world um so you know i tip my hat to them i think i think it did really well and continues to pay off for them in a few ways uh, but also really pleased at the same time that their japanese division really never lost that you know what made them sega mm. um you know particularly with the, the yakuza series you know ev- everyone knows yakuza feels a little bit like Shenmue. It's also got roots in the uh, Spike Out um, arcade series that Nagoshi did, and then they would like fill their games with, uh, you know, cl- you know, really good versions of classic Sega arcade games. That you know, the the fact that the the latest Like a Dragon game has the only ever home version of Daytona Two on huh. there, in in my opinion, makes makes it worth buying the game alone just just to play that arcade game so um that you know they've still kept to their roots all the way through it yeah that's really that's really interesting so what you're saying is football manager 2016 won't be in your top 10 is that uh, we're rolling that out now or uh... Uh, uh, un- until you can unlock virtuous striker <laughs> I'm, <laughs> yeah, or... I'm waiting for a future yakuza where enough time has passed that you can play total war or football manager <laughs> on a PC in that world. <laughs> yeah, just have a quick cheeky 200 hours of medieval total war inside uh, <laughs> yeah, Ichiban's apartment or whatever. Um, yeah, I look forward to that too. Okay, cool. That's I mean that's that's great deep knowledge, Ash. So I suppose like the other angle I wanted to ask was how did you sort of go about excavating Sega history after that? Because you have you are a big time video game collector. I, I get the, the sense you've got quite a, a vast Saturn library. So, yes. what's your sort of continued sort of like relationship to that stuff, like up to the present day? Um, I still own my Japanese Sega Saturn that I bought in 1998, um, and I'm still collecting games for it. It's it's got a really deep and wide catalogue of games as, as a Japanese Saturn, and that makes it perfect for collectors because there's always something new to try and get. There's all these hidden gems that even as uh, a really big fan you might not know every great game on the system so you know you can go to a a retro game store or browse ebay and you know take a chance on something you might discover something really interesting um and it's got it's got a lot of um rarities as well so i think a bit i think a big part of being a collector is as you get older a lot of it is about buying the cool stuff that perhaps you missed out on the first time around or couldn't afford um decades earlier um and saturn is perfect for that it's got you know you know radiant silvergun is is probably a prime example of uh, a game that is enormously high quality but also has this kind of like collector's allure uh to it, it keeps going up in in value there aren't that many copies um i know not everyone's not not everyone is into that um element of collecting but um, for for people who are um, those consoles that have the kind of you know crown jewels in them, just makes them more interesting to collect for. Um, I've also got a nice um, Mega CD collection. We haven't talked about the Mega CD, um, but that's that's another great collector's system because it's you know a, a piece of hardware that was ignored, but actually once you get into it, has 
some really nice uh, titles on there. For example, it is the only console that has an English language version of Snatcher. Um, not a Sega game, but you know, it's uh, you know a, a Sega platform that has all these cool things on there. Um, you know, worth talking about. You know, if we're talking about third-party support, um, I consider the Sega Saturn a Capcom console as much as I do a Sega console. To hmm. be honest, it, you know, the the Saturn's a really interesting machine in that it um, because it was designed to be an arcade at home experience, and competing with PlayStation was more of an afterthought. It was kind of designed as a two D powerhouse first and foremost, and then they threw these 3D chips in, which made it really complicated to program for. Uh, but it did mean you got some you got some really great 3D games, like Panzer Dragoon, uh, but you got the best quality versions of like the hottest 2D arcade games at the time. Um, you know, various Street Fighter, Street Fighter Alpha, Street Fighter Alpha 3, um, X-Men versus Street Fighter, these fantastic high-quality 2D games that Capcom were making, they brought some of them to PlayStation, but PlayStation didn't have, you know, the the raw power, didn't have the RAM to to run these games properly. So they would they would drop frames on PlayStation, or um, the tag team games wouldn't allow you to tag on on some of the versions. You're like, oh, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> um, but the Saturn could do these, especially because the Saturn was expandable. So um, the Saturn has this large cartridge slot at the back and you could um, a little bit like the n64 you could put a four megabyte ram cartridge in there and, and make the machine even more powerful uh, and that was great for all the like capcom and snk fighting games it just meant you had you know as close to arcade perfect versions at home so yeah love my saturn it's a little arcade machine uh, mm. a question on the the kind of like you know ar- arcade being so intertwined with mm. with the sega experience and your love of it where where does your uh where does the jrpg side of things come into it and fit into oh, it oh yeah oh it absolutely does and i think you know that's you know sega have made a few rpgs over the years and that's mm. probably an understatement that goes all the way back to the master system and the original fantasy star mm. um which you know was made by sonic team i think before they were called sonic team uh and was a real smash uh for master system fans i i've owned a master system i'm it's probably my least favorite sega console but you can't underestimate how important fantasy star was um for sega fans and particularly american gamers as well you know led to a a long history of really high quality jrpgs that kind of carved out their own space as as well you know while dragon quest and final fantasy were doing the fantasy thing sega were providing a space rpg which was you know felt a lot more unique at the time and obviously paved the way for fantasy star online which kind of introduced a little bit of mmos to console gamers Mm. um paved the way for monster hunter as well um, so they've always innovated in that space. Um, Sega brought um, tactical RPGs to to Europe with the Shining Force series many, many years before we even knew what Fire Emblem was uh, in the West. We had the, the two Shining Force games on Mega Drive. Um, and, you know, that lineage keeps going. Like, you know, y- Yakuza is really an, an action RPG and has all, all the depth and breadth that you would expect from an RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's always kind of 
been there and i think i think they were very conscious of that in the saturn era i think they were very careful to ensure that as well as bringing these arcade experiences home they were also trying to compete with playstation by giving you these single player games that had lots of depth and lots of longevity Mm. um shining force 3 is on the saturn it's my favorite game of all time it might be in the list um panzer dragoon (laughs) saga (laughs) yeah you'd hope so panzer dragoon saga um this kind of infamous game now i think that there's probably more people who uh, would love to play it than have played it uh, because it's kind of landlocked on on saturn and there weren't many um, english language copies made of it it's not easy to emulate um but was this you know amazingly innovative game that took a star fox like 3d shooter and made it into an rpg um no one's ever really done that before or since and, and whoa, for whoa, me whoa. that's uh, star fox mm. adventures <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> how, how silly of me <laughs> um I, for, for me that's the um you know we talk about the nintendo difference there's, there's also the, the the sega difference of you know a, a real difference like go, going in their own direction not following trends and you know combining their influences as well like Panzer Dragoon Saga I think is a really good example of it has that Sega arcade quality to it but it also has that kind of depth of single player experience that you would see in Shenmue a couple of years later uh, and you see in Yakuza today Um, so yeah I I think they're a very inventive company and I, I think they they get they don't get enough credit actually for how much they balanced the kind of arcade at home and the way console games were going at the time it, they were just so overshadowed by PlayStation that they, they were pushed out of the conversation really mm. Mm, interesting damn what a comprehensive uh, overview there uh, <laughs> ash uh, so um Okay, now I so... understand why people were so cross with our previous Sega coverage. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose like out of that, it sounds like the Saturn is probably your favourite piece of hard hardware by Sega. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so that's uh, that's pretty much um, dead set then. So I suppose then why why do you think there is such a strong connection to Sega in the UK? Do you think it is because mm. it was cheaper and therefore more affordable if you were working class in the in the nineties? Do you think that is genuinely a factor to why people got into Sega consoles? I, th- I think anything I have to say on this topic is more anecdotal i haven't done lots of research into it but i you know think about you know the dominance of the the nes and the famicom in in america and japan that it just didn't have the same foothold here Mm. um and i think i think the um you know the the lack of a presence for the nes kind of left the door open for sega to come in and and give people a a cool console experience you know we we did have the nes but it, it you know it launched later initially it wasn't distributed by nintendo it's distributed by mattel who you know, they simply would not have been invested in it in the way nintendo would have been it was very very expensive for an 8-bit system when at the time it would have been much more economical for people to get a, a commodore 64 or or an amiga um and yeah i think i think that left the door open for for sega who also had you know let's not forget sega had uh, the sports games so they had ea on their side where um for for a while nintendo really didn't so you know fifa was was a big part of why 
you know, let's call them normal people, uh, would buy a <laughs> Mega Drive. Um, I knew a lot of people who had John Madden, even though that's more of an American uh, thing. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I thought um, John Madden was a video game character for the longest <laughs> time because he only existed in yeah. my world as a video game thing and as adverts in games magazines. And I, I think it's outlived him in a way. Like it is, yeah, that's his his legacy. Um, and he seemed uh, like how he would feel about v- that. You know, not to not to like ding him or anything, but like you know, he's quite an unusual looking guy. You can see, <laughs> yeah. it was like, oh, is this like a mascot they've made? You see the boss, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he does look like he was sort of created by a marketing artist in 1985 or something. Right. You know what I mean? Like, mascot does kind of make sense, I think. So uh, when he popped up in The Simpsons, I was like, oh, he's a real guy. How strange. Uh, Yeah. Um, I I often feel that way about uh, the colonel from KFC. Every time I remember that he was a real person, I think, surely not. That that can't be true. He's a cartoon. (laughs) The other thing is is that Sega culture was just so embedded in the 90s. Like, you know, obviously Sega World, but also just the fact that you know, I had the Sonic, one of the Sonic animated shows on VHS. Like they, yeah. were, they were just all over Woolworths. It was just, it, it was just, there was just a, a hot, a hot minute there where Sega was everywhere in the mid nineties, yeah. and then it was just sort of over very quickly. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't underestimate the um, the power of Sonic. We haven't really talked about Sonic very much. We should do. It's important. Um, uh, you know, PlayStation and Wipeout, they get all this credit for making video games cool, which which they did, but. You go back a few years, and like Sonic was this like aspirational hero for the kids. Uh, they called him the Hedgehog with Attitude, which I find hilarious. What does that mean, Hedgehog with Attitude? <laughs> um, but yeah, they 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 capitalized on cool in a way Nintendo didn't really feel able to with with their kind of you know chubby plumber and his dungarees and certainly like the home computers everyone had them but they weren't cool like so you can't be cool if you've got a keyboard built in it's it's impossible um so yeah i yeah i was in the right place at the right time when sonic came out i think you know 1991 i was nine years old i was in the playground people were talking about sonic the hedgehog they were like role-playing as him running around in in the playground it it was it was a phenomenon so yeah of, of course that that like pushed mega drive in into the forefront um and it's just it's just a very sega thing that they they had that head start in the west you know uh, the genesis did really well initially in the states as well mostly because of the sports games and just brilliant uh in in a way that sega could have that dominance and then just lose it so completely I and mean, that's that's a topic for another podcast really but the the way they confused consumers with the mega cd and the 32x that you know they had you know the western arm of sega telling people they should buy a 32x instead of a saturn which is mind-bogglingly stupid mm. and and I, th- I think they just they just never recovered from that confusing period really d- despite the the quality that was there yeah no seo list on the internet is working harder than best 32x games like it's because <laughs> i've played a bunch of them because they're you know obviously you can emulate them quite easily and you always see knuckles and chaotix on there that is a, a like the worst possible mm. version of a 2d sonic game and that's like always one of like the top three hits on there um you're a big 32x guy ash no, I I bought one once and I sold it. It just even years after the fact as a collectible piece, it felt a little bit like what is the point? Like okay, it's got Virtual Fighter on there, but I've got Virtual Fighter on the the Saturn. It's got Virtual Racing. F- fine. 
yeah I've had virtual racing on other systems it 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 had a it had a lot of games that ran really well but nothing you know it did it didn't have it didn't have that must have mm. title exclusive title that you would find like even even the mega cd you know the mega cd has sonic cd a really viable and fun Sonic the Hedgehog game, Snatcher. 32X didn't have that. Snatcher, yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, is there? I suppose like um, actually, that's one other thing I wanted to ask. We get to your top ten. Is there any Sega series that you just do not get along with? Something where you're like, I don't see the appeal, or you've never really engaged with it. I always wondered if Sonic was a bit like that for you, actually, Ash. Um, but um, oh no, I love Sonic. Yeah, I'm, actually, I'm comp- <laughs> I'm just I'm misremembering now how much you like uh, you like Sonic. Um, remembering, yeah. yeah. Um, so is there anything where you don't quite click with the uh, with with a series? Um, it probably is Yakuza, to to be honest, and not and not just because of our encounter with Nagoshi. <laughs> I I've tried so hard to get into the Yakuza games, and uh, like I say, they they do appeal to me because of the retro connections they have. But I find them so um, front loaded with story and tutorial and and a slow pace that takes a while to open up that I just I don't have time in my life. For that kind of game right now and maybe if those games had come out when i was a teenager i would be absolutely obsessed with them I, I really love the shenmue games and they're not that different but yeah i just i just haven't been able to penetrate that yakuza bubble and i, I feel like i don't have time as well like it feels like they release a new game in in the I mean, yakuza like as the <coughs> dragon series like more even more frequently than one a year um and they're such long deep games i, I i'm like how could i possibly catch up now but they yeah they look great mm, interesting uh, <clears throat> matthew is it too is it too early uh, before no 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 because uh, no, embar- the game comes out today right yeah right so that's what i thought the embargo would have lifted so you've yeah. been playing the latest uh that was actually why i put this podcast in the schedule because i thought mm. this is the biggest sega release of the year right it's um you know a se- the sequel to yuku's like a dragon so uh infinite wealth matthew how's it been treating you at the time of recording like i'm i'm still early on in it it's a, it's a massive game. I think I've played it for about 20 hours Blimey. and only just unlocked the Animal Crossing style mini game within it. Right. It's really taking its time to kind of drip feed that stuff in. It's very like Yakuza Like a Dragon, you know, if you played that sort of ultra trad sort of JRPG under all the, all the kind of modern day kind of contemporary trappings. There's a very, very big focus on equipment, crafting better equipment is how you get the big power jumps in the game so well, i don't know if it's particularly electric on a mechanics level but as a story and a collection of characters i think it's where it really shines you know as much as i love kiryu i think they've used the jrpg and the concept of the jrpg party to really craft a story about close relationships and friendships which was true of the first one it just feels like much more of an ensemble piece than the other games and it's so affectionately drawn like I, I i love the relationships you know they you really really buy into that group of people and you know maybe like more so than in most jrpgs because they are recognizable everyday people and and not like you know fantasy tropes there's something very very relatable so just as this big kind of friendship game i'm really really digging it and one of the really fun things is that kiryu is in your party as a party member and they've kind of made a turn-based version of him, so he still has all his different fighting styles, 
which you can switch between on his turns and it kind of changes how he b- performs in battle so it's this sort of a much better kind of meeting of old yakuza and new yakuza yes yeah, it's, it's it's really strong but it just feels like it's going to be like 150 hours long right like, it's a, it's an absolute monster mm. but yeah it's good mm, interesting I, I i yeah i suppose like uh have you fought the big shark yet have you done that Matthew? I, I haven't fought the i think that might be quite late game content great screenshot though oh yeah it makes you want to play i fought lots of daft things i, still, I think the fight choreography is absolutely amazing like i think the way they make these games so fast is there's obviously a huge amount of like asset recycling mm. and they also have this tiered approach to sort of fidelity your average encounter with something is just two static character models unvoiced and then if something's a bit more important there'll be a little bit more animation and it'll be partially voiced and then very occasionally you get like the proper cutscenes, which are all like motion captured have the amazing fight choreography have all these really big sort of shouty performances and those scenes are so glossy and well produced that you come away thinking how the hell have they made like a 150 AAA game where actually they haven't they've just they really know when to deploy their efforts to make you feel like you're playing something bigger yeah which is the way they make three of these things a year 80% of it is actually incredibly basic right but it impresses enough that you, the overall feeling is is much bigger they're doing more interviews now about that process i feel like they've been a bit more open this last year about they say, well, if a guy working on the man who erased his name is working on a mini game, which is also going to be an in infinite wealth, we basically tick it off in both games at once. And that's the way they kind of make these things in tandem. A triumph of project management. Yeah, producers there work it over time uh, uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Ash, I was curious if that strand of, uh, of, of Like a Dragon, as it's now called, was not more your sort of thing, because, you know, turn-based JRPG combat, there's only two of them, the second yeah. one's yet to come out. Were you tempted to start again with that part of the series? Because that's kind of what I've done, because there's just too I, many of the old games to play. I was, and I, and I did give Yakuza Like a Dragon uh, a, a go um, when it came to Game Pass. Um yeah, the fact the fact that it leans even further into the RPG stuff, and even uh, is that that's the one that has a character who's like obsessed with Dragon Quest. Well, that's mm. it. Yeah, Ichiban. Right? Like the whole thing's it's set in you know regular Yakuza world, but in his mm. head he thinks he's in a Dragon Quest game. So all the fights, everyone turns into like crazy monsters because it's yeah. from his perspective. There's even a and bit I- where like he the uh, another character asks him why do you just stand there and take hits and it's like well i play dragon quest and in dragon quest you get hit and then it's your turn again basically he's kind of explaining the concept of a turn-based japanese rpg to someone and then that's basically how it plays out uh so yeah i did i did go i I started that one up on on game pass and i was so excited about it and then i just you know what i was describing earlier of like trying to get through those first initial hours Mm. waiting for it to open up is I don't think it's a fair criticism of the game because that's that's what it takes to get into this kind of game. It's more just an acknowledgement of I'm just incredibly busy, right? You know, a full time job, dog, baby, uh, driving myself crazy, trying to uh, review retro games on a blog uh, right. as often yeah. as possible. Um, these kind of big experiences fall by the wayside. I've only played the first hour of Spider Man Two, and it seems really cool. Um, mm. I I. I keep looking at the Yakuza series and I keep asking myself, where is the right jumping on point? It doesn't sound like it's the most recent two games. It still feels to me like uh, 
Yakuza Zero or the remake of One would still would be the right choice. Yeah, Steve, I would think, you agree? I think people are generally in agreement on Zero being yeah. like if you want to do the whole thing, Zero. Mm. But I do think you can get in on on Ichiban. Like a load of characters turn up, and and you know sort of marvel connect you know cinematic universe style come in and Mm. there's like who the fuck is this guy um but i think they explain themselves like enough that you can get through it without being too confused and it it, you know the focus is a new bunch of characters and it kind of presses reset on the kind of history of that world in a sort of clever way which i won't spoil for people who haven't played it Mm. um so i I do i i guarantee i will load up and play the man who erased his name but it's a little bit disingenuous. I will skip as many dialogues and cutscenes as I can, make oh. a beeline to the arcade, and play <laughs> Daytona 2. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I, I love the story. If anything, I'm like, with these games, I'm like, I wish there was less fighting in them. I wish I could skip that somehow. Um, one of the good things, actually, in Infinite Wealth they've added is that if you are, like, uh, sufficiently over-leveled for, for a particular encounter you can just like insta kill those enemies mm. and you just press a button oh, and your yeah. team just kick the shit out of them in like two seconds and you don't actually have to go through the fight which i'm i'm quite into as a as an idea mm. and even despite that it's still fucking monstrously long so uh yeah oh, yeah but I, I don't know it's just good good vibes it's really funny properly funny you know there's there's loads of dodgy stuff in it i know uh, one of the this has got like a whole pokemon clone in it um <laughs> called wow. sujimon which is what they call the kind of the, the fantasy versions of people that Ichiban sees. But it's basically Pokemon, except you're collecting like sort of deranged perverts instead of monsters. <laughs> right. So you, you build a party of, of these like pervy, pervy characters and then you go and fight them in these like underground clubs. But mm. it's all got like a, pa- but it, it parodies the whole thing with like all the gym leaders and the leagues. And there's the, I can't remember, they're not called the Elite Four, they're called like the Dangerous Four or something. But like just as a side game, it has what feels like is going to be a 30 hour Pokemon game. Right. Like with, and, and you can just cheat once it's introduced it as part of the story, you can just ignore it. It has nothing to do with anything else. It has no bearing on how you level up or how your characters behave. It's just a, well, we had all these assets. This is a way of, of reframing this again as as this mad mini game. Um, same for the Animal Crossing. Like it's just there if if you want to do it. Like there's a whole island to manage, a whole holiday island. So there there, uh, there must be people out there who they they get a new game in the series, play it all year long, yeah, and then just put, and then just play the next game, and go straight uh, into yeah. it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I work um, quite closely with some of my teams. Like a, a, a huge user ahead, and is like, yeah, this will just be my thing for like two hundred hours, um, like even more. I mean, that's just there's completing these games, and then there's you know, if you want to get like trophies and all this kind of stuff, you have to max out like all the side distractions. Which, considering you're talking about entire arcade games, you know, learning how to play fucking shogi, which like no one i am i'm just i i i think phil when he was on was talking about having to play you know the nightmare of like if there is a shogi related objective in the achievement list you're like fuck me i've got to learn japanese chess to basically <laughs> just tick this off um it's it's just what is wildly um overblown but yeah people are just 
I think people are just Yakuza fans rather than necessarily like I'm a, mm. I'm a gaming fan. I just this is the thing I do. <laughs> oh, so interesting! It really is of all the series, the one I wish I could I could make more time for. Um, you know, in a, in a parallel universe where I wasn't making this podcast, maybe I would play them all. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, st- I think Yakuza Zero is still the one. Ash, if you do fancy it, like uh, y- Yakuza Kiwami is actually really disappointing. You realise that maybe the first Yakuza game on PS2 wasn't really all that. Yeah, Zero well, is just well, so much so much better. What I mean, how old, how old is Yakuza Zero now? It must it must be getting on a bit. Twenty seventeen, I think, over here. Okay, and sixteen so, maybe in the in, in Japan. So twenty twenty seven, I can think of it as retro. <laughs> and I can cover it for the blog. <laughs> Easy, perfect. Okay, good. Well, that sounds like a good uh, a good compromise. Okay, let's take a quick break then, Ash. And we'll come back with your top ten Sega games. back to the podcast so in this half we're going to talk about ash's top 10 sega games we're going to correct uh, years of sort of like uh, misinformation on this podcast about <laughs> sega with a well-balanced uh, sort of take on their immense uh, back catalogue of games ash do you want to talk a bit about your selection criteria for this top 10 yeah um if if the exercise of this podcast is to make all of the uk sega fans happy and stop complaining <laughs> I'm not confident we're going to do it with this top 10. Um, <laughs> I, I really wanted to concentrate on you know, the, the, the games I personally love as a Sega fan. The, the games that I keep coming back and playing decades later. The ones that make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside when I think about Sega. And they're not necessarily the ones that, you know, if you were writing a more objective list for a games magazine or an SEO list, they're not the same games like you know spoilers there's no sonic the hedgehog game on this list that there was at one point i had sonic cd on there it had to go um there's no yakuza game on there but as we've established i'm not particularly qualified to to talk about that anyway and and you know i want this list to you know reflect the passion that i have for sega games um so you know purely and simply they are pretty much my favorite sega games um but i i have refrained from putting my favourite Sega game at number one. That's where I've jiggled things around again, and and the number one is a, a game I absolutely adore that I think is is a real universal crowd pleaser. Um, so yeah, that's what I've done. Hmm, interesting. Well, it, it, what I will say uh, before we get into it, um, I have got a list of honourable mentions that I wanted to rattle through no commentary whatsoever <laughs> and i i raise this just to illustrate the point of like how many awesome sega games there there are like uh, one of the companies with just like the deepest catalog of really cool stuff so if you if you'd indulge me i'm just going to run through this list you are real indulged quick. just na- i'm just going to name some games and then people can go people can't accuse me of saying oh why didn't you mention Choo Choo Rocket. Well, oh. I did. It's funny you uh, say that, actually, because we're doing best games of 2002 in a week, and I made a list of like 50 games that would be like eligible and worth talking about for for a top 10. And the first thing someone on our Discord said was, "Where's Gothic 2?" 
And I was like, oh. <laughs> where is Gothic 2? <laughs> oh, that which made me laugh. But um, yeah, fair enough, uh, Ash. Um, so yeah, kick off by all means. The honorable right, Here we go. This is a list of games everyone should play in their life. F-Zero GX, Daytona USA, Sega Rally, all amazing racing games. Panzer Dragoon, Res, Space Channel 5, Skies of Arcadia, House of the Dead 2, Billy Hatcher and his giant egg. Yes, even that one. No. Choo Choo Rocket, <laughs> Fantasy Star Online, Jet Set Radio, Virtua Tennis, Sonic the Hedgehog, Alex Kidd, Samba de Amigo, Virtua Fighter, Fighting Vipers, and Fighters Megamix. You'll have a good time with all of those, including mm. Billy Hatcher, I promise you. Not even Sonic CD on there, Ash. That seems like the most Ashley day of all the different Sonic, so- Sonic, Sonic games. Sonic CD was, was in my top ten. It's bloody brilliant you can read about it on my blog there's a plug it's all it's all on there go read about it on what there. where is your blog just so uh, to remind people to go check uh, it out uh games from the black hole dot wordpress dot com nice and we'll, i played uh, uh, uh fighting vipers in judgment the yakuza spin-off oh of course were you yes. um were you not sort of like uh skies of arcadia is an interesting one because it's the mm. game that's most brought up as probably you know of, of everything of uh of the different sega games that needs, needs a remake yeah so um that not being uh chosen is interesting um mm. it's does and also i was going to ask does panzer dragoon being here mean that that rules out the whole series for your top 10 or is that there, just there that? are i absolutely adore the panzer dragoon series but none of them are in my top 10 oh interesting so uh you big saga guy that's like i bet you've got that on uh Saturday, I, I do own a pal copy of of that uh, i've played it all the way through to the end um, one of the cool things about Panzer Dragoon Saga, by the way, um, in in their dying days, Future Publishing's Sega Saturn magazine gave away the entire disc one of Panzer Dragoon Saga mm. um, on the magazine. Which that's how I got into the game. Played played that free disc. You get about twenty hours of content. It's it's amazing. And then I was ready to jump into the full game, and it was nowhere to be found. It had already sold out everywhere. Wow. Um, but yeah, um, absolutely amazing series. But you know, really, if I was talking about all of my favourite Sega games, it would you could do a top one hundred. I'm not exaggerating. So I've had to be very selective. Okay, so last question I'll ask about about this then is which of the Panzer Dragoon games would you pick? The original on Saturn, or would you pick Auto? I love Auto. I would say the Panzer Dragoons Y on Saturn. So that's that's the second one. Hmm. Um, the original Panzer Dragoon is is really good, but it feels quite um limited now there's not much replayability to it whereas the sequel is is more packed with secrets alternative paths or all that kind of thing sort of sort of the stuff that made Star Fox 64 really replayable mm. why did the same quite a list of honorable mentions so um mm. with all that in mind Ash do you want to get to your number 10 number 10 is Streets of Rage 2 mm. Um, you know, we talk about Sega's arcade heritage. This this was a really great example of taking the arcade feeling but making a, a console exclusive game. Uh, Streets of Rage series obviously owes a lot to the likes of uh, Final Fight by Capcom, uh, Scrolling Beat 'em Up, uh, massive in the '90s. This genre, um, I think, Streets of Rage Two is is by far the finest example uh, of this kind of game, the kind of belt scroller game. Um, it's uh, as is often the case with Sega games. The appeal is like fifty percent style and attitude. Um, I, I I think I might be wrong. I think almost all of Streets of Rage Two takes place at night, so you get these incredible 
backgrounds where uh, you know lighting plays a really important part the you know the, the city skylines the little dots of the windows in the high rise towers um and then in the foreground the the lighting of you know the shop windows and bars um uh, kind of coloured street lamps, uh, you know, dec- decorative, almost like Christmas lighting as you go through the park, um, really um, made it quite an atmospheric game to, to look at. And I think looking at a game when it's a scrolling beat-em-up is really an important part of the, the genre um, because you, you're literally kind of moving through these dioramas. Part of the appeal is what am I going to see next as the game scrolls? Um and of course, the music. Um, Yuzo Koshiro, one of the greatest uh, Japanese game composers of all time, a master of the FM sound chip. You know, he famously like uh, composed his music for Streets of Rage using Mega Drive hardware to do so. They're kind of like these, almost like dance club anthems. And I'm I'm not into dance music at all. But in a video game context, I really love this kind of music that that you know that synthy feel. I think it's right for this genre where you're constantly mm. moving forward. There's a rhythm to the punching and the kicking and the throwing. That music like keeps you pumped, keeps you going forward. Some of the some of the track names for the music uh, in Streets of Rage Two. You wouldn't know them from playing the game, but you know the soundtrack's out there on Spotify and iTunes. Uh, I think the first track is called "Go Straight," uh, which is a command you're given at the beginning of the game to, you know, in case you've never played a beat 'em up before, you need to walk forwards. Um, the, the second name uh, track, if I'm if I've got my numbers correct, is called "Never Return Alive." Um, which <laughs> I just think that that's the, the coolest name for any track ever. Um, uh, you know, I don't think there's much uh, need to talk about the gameplay too much for Streets of Rage. Everyone knows what it is, but it, I think suffice to say it's it's a really well honed, finely tuned set of fighting game mechanics. The amount of uh, flexibility and player expression that they squeeze out of a D pad and a, and a couple of buttons uh, is brilliant. And I, th- I think it's a game you can keep uh, returning to over and over again and having. A great time it's got that that sega quality of you can pick it up for five minutes and you're gonna instantly have a blast like it gets to the fun as quickly mm. as possible mm. Interesting. Too. yeah i definitely have played this at some point because it was on the uh, 360 sega uh, mega drive mm. collection which i was pretty um experience with i guess i was going to ask ash if there's like a what's the best way to play this but sega games are so widely available you could just play it on pc you could play it on switch it doesn't yeah. really matter massively where you find it i suppose so, if, uh, if it's if it's a mega drive game and it was published by sega chances are you already own 10 copies of it somewhere. <laughs> exactly okay cool uh what's your number nine number nine is you could argue this is another scrolling fighter so maybe i've um contradicted myself uh again but it's also kind of a platform game uh another Mega Drive hit is Comics Zone. Now, this is a bit divisive. I know there's some people who really do not like uh, this game, uh, but it, it's it's one of my all-time favourites, hence it's on this list. Mm. Um, Comics Zone, made by the Sega Technical Institute, which was an American studio made mostly of kind of ex-Atari people. This one was made by, I think it's the team who later went on to make Vigilante 8, of all things. The, the conceit of this game is you're playing as uh, a guy called Sketch Turner 
who is a comic book artist who gets zapped into his own comic a bit like tron you know tron he gets zapped into the video game in this you get zapped into a comic um and you have to fight your way through um all of you know all of the baddies he's designed and, and the big villain is is the boss um the central gimmick of this game is that the stage layouts look like comic book pages complete with the the panels um so the very first screen is is the first you know top left panel of of page one and you can just see you know you can see the borders of the panel you can see what is uh beyond uh to the right you get a little bit of a glimpse of what's beyond there and you can you know as you move to the right sketch will like grab the page and like vault over the border of the panel so it really buys into that uh that illusion of you exploring a comic book but you can also see what's below what a little hint of what is in the panels beneath you and it makes for this um in some places quite non-linear game where you can explore the page in, in different sequences there are puzzle elements so if you if you interact with the environment in certain ways you will discover a different way to move through the page get into panels that felt locked off before and have a, a unique kind of set piece moment in them what you know other ways they commit to the conceit you can rip a piece of the background off turn it into a paper plane and then throw it at people um you have a a pet rat uh, in your inventory you can get your pet rat out he's called roadkill um and he will sniff around the page and if he sniffs a secret he will like rip the page and get you the like power up um, out of the the back of it um, as enemies um, enter the screen instead of just walking on from the right they are drawn onto the screen in like real time in front of you uh, by the hand of the um, the villain who as you, you know a sketch has gone into the comic the villain has left the comic so he's in the real world drawing enemies for you to fight um, so it's got quite Monty Python energy that big hand yeah yeah exactly <laughs> or um, or you know duck a muck uh, if yeah. anyone knows that cartoon um so yeah really a, a really innovative presentation uh at a time when video games weren't really doing this sort of thing like it, this sort of thing is more common in the playstation era i think that kind of like self-reflexive feel and exploring the form as much as the content um so you know a really clever game and that cleverness also translates into fun I think the reason a lot of people don't like this game is it's incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, I don't think I've... I've never finished it. I don't think I've ever got off like the third or fourth stage. It, it has it has a strange kind of lives or continue system. So I think you get a couple of lives. It's quite stingy with them. And then when you, you know, die for, for good, you can get a continue... How it decides whether to give you a continue or not seems really um, vague. Um, basically, the, the the villain who's out in the real world and drawing enemies, sometimes he will take pity on you and give you a continue, and sometimes he won't. And th- there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to why that is. Good. So sometimes you'll, you'll get pretty far and you're like, oh, well, I have to start all over again, and I don't really understand why. <laughs> Interesting. So I have played this, and I will say that I think the presentation is fantastic, and I can see why it appealed to you as you're like a big '90s comic 
guy, right? Ash, like, um, you know, Spider-Man. Oh, absolutely. I know Spider-Man yeah. is like a, you know, you're a big Spider-Man guy. I was, and... there, I was there for the Image Comics boom and all of the attitude that went along with that. Yeah, how many variant covers did you have of, uh, you know, sort of like X-Force uh, one yeah. or whatever? I've no idea. But, um, yeah, so um, I can see why this appealed to you. I found the gameplay a little bit... I found it quite tricky to... to I think I picked it up in the early noughties i might have had this on one of the i had a ps2 mega drive collection as well i think Mm. i might have had it on there maybe but um in any case i found it like quite challenging gameplay wise but really liked the presentation matthew did you play this one yeah i think i played this on virtual console Mm. um yeah and and i basically agree with everything ash says like it's you know conceptually amazing very very difficult but you know does seem quite ahead of its time. It's funny you still say, oh, you know, people got more used to kind of playing with the form, you know, later in like PlayStation games or whatever. But well, I think even now, if if you if you put something out like this, people would go quite nuts for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, this year. You've got the Plucky Squire coming out, yeah, right, which is right. that kind of big storybook and the kind of metaness of it, and the you know the idea of going in and out of the page, and you know th- that. I, I genuinely think that you know would have a bit of a wow wow factor today um so yeah at the time kind of yeah crazy you know there was there were a few things like this on mega drive which just seemed so ahead of the game another world's another one of them actually mm. um of just like what the fuck this is you know this is cool now you know <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I will say on, on the difficulty piece, you know, if anyone is listening to po- this podcast and they're going to play this game for the first time, I'll, I'll give my top games master tip for this. <laughs> um, you really have to vary up your attacks. So there's there's kind of like a little bit of artificial intelligence to the enemies. If you keep spamming the same basic punch or kick or whatever, the enemies learn that and they will just block them uh, continuously. So you have to vary it up. You have to switch between punches and kicks really quickly. Uh, uh, switch between crouching, standing, and jumping attacks. That can make it a little bit of an exhausting game to play because you 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 very quickly and repeatedly cycling between different attacks. Um, but that's the only way to really move forward and stand a chance in in this game. And I think the people who get frustrated are the ones who. They, they they're finding they're just punching 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 and not doing any damage and the, you know it's one of those old games where there's nothing in the instruction book that tells you you need to play in that way so it it loses people so it's not it's not a perfect game by any stretch and actually most of this list is made up of imperfect games which is interesting i th- i think that's again part of that sega appeal of they try new things they don't get it completely right Mm. But in doing so, they are trying things no one else has ever tried. Yeah, I think I said that makes it a good pick. Um, yeah, okay, interesting. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll go back and give this another go. Again, I'm sure I own this ten times on various different things. Oh yeah, There's Sam. Definitely- uh, just a quick question on Comic Zone. So the concept of a man getting pulled into his own comic book work. Which real life comic book artist would have the worst time if they were pulled into their comic book? <laughs> oh, it would probably be. Um, Dave McKeon, um, like being trapped in Arkham Asylum, um, <laughs> like that. that's like 
the Grant Morrison book that <laughs> just the drawings of the Joker in that are just really just so so horrible. Um, but I, I guess actually on the X Force note, Rob Liefeld having I was going to say Rob being, Liefeld <laughs> being confronted with his own out of proportion creations, <laughs> a side booby Captain America that would be uh, that'd be tough. Um, Rob so, Liefeld yeah. would get into the game. His oversized chest would be so much weight for him to bear, <laughs> and the fa- and the fact that he can't draw feet would mean he would just topple over. <laughs> I do think the real Rob Liefeld though could kick the shit out of like all of his characters. Oh, like yeah. he seems like quite a sort of like feisty dude. Yeah. Whereas uh, well, yeah. I'm glad we went down this avenue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did have an answer ready to go. Uh, fortunately, so uh, yeah, I am. Um, the reason I paused slightly was to check. I always get Michael McKeon and Dave McKeon mixed up, so uh, it's right. good to just get these things right and not confuse it with a better call Saul <laughs> actor. So uh, yes, um, what's in a break, Ash? Uh, number eight. We mentioned it earlier. Uh, Valkyria Chronicles. Oh, of course. Now, uh, is this a game you've both played? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, cool. Not not vast amounts of, but I'm a m- massive, massive fan of tactical games, tactical RPGs. It's my favourite genre. Um, for years and years, there wasn't that much innovation in this genre, um, particularly in the tactics RPG space. Uh, you'd have a load of units on a grid. That grid might be completely flat it might be isometric 3d but it would be a grid and i'd have a great time uh because i love the genre but it was never really moving forward that that Mm. much valkyria chronicles came out and just like a complete breath of fresh air for this genre and i I think there's a couple of reasons for that um and it's it's the the two engines that they were promoting that fancy names for these engines the the blitz engine and the canvas engines the uh the canvas engine was the graphical engine they had which gave this um which is set the scene really it's kind of like an alternative world war ii game so if you if you imagine world war ii but it looks nice and some people are happy that's basically the the world of valkyria chronicles um the you know they use the canvas engine to give this 3d game a kind of like hand-drawn watercolor world look to it really striking at the time and i think still quite unique today so you know a beautiful looking game that's that's really inviting uh, really suits this like anime version of World War Two, um, and then the Blitz engine was was all about the the, the tactics and the gameplay. Um, there's no grid in this tactics game; it's completely free roaming. You have complete freedom of movement within a certain amount of space. You know, it's still it still gates how far you can go. Essentially, like uh, action pointing uh, how far you can go. I think if anyone's playing Baldur's Gate three right now, they they will understand this this system of being able to move in any direction but you can only move so far uh the camera instead of being like looking top down god view you were kind of more behind them over the shoulder like a gears of war view so you you know you were in the action you 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 know when bullets whizzed past like you felt it and characters would like cower and hide from from danger um, so it made what is traditionally quite a somber kind of board game like genre into more of a an emotive action packed game without losing the depth of tactical systems that that are in there um I think one one of the cool things about Valkyria chronicles is it's all about the tank uh it's your you know the star unit of your army is this uh tank that uh you you know you only have one uh it's there in most 
battles. It's obviously very, very powerful. You, you're going to take out bosses and walls with this tank. And it has like a limited weak point at the back, like a little engine that uh, snipers and grenadiers can, can kind of sneak around and disable your tank if they play smart. So you, you have to be quite tactical about making sure like, right, I'm always going to try and keep an engineer walking behind my tank so they can repair it if it gets hit. Uh, but I'll keep a couple of gunners back there as well who can keep an eye out for snipers and shoot them down. Um, so it's got exactly that um, that like depth of decision-making, uh, um, planning out a strategy before you deploy and go ahead. One of, one of the key components of this game is uh, the map. Um, so between each turn... Um, it will show you a kind of map of the battlefield, you know, like like you would see in war movies where they're moving like units across uh, like a real kind of model map on a desktop and strategizing from afar. Or like Dad's Army opening Dad's, Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly <laughs> like that. It, I mean, it does look like that. Um, so it, it really encourages you to think about the the landscape. Uh, the the buildings that you know the ruined buildings of these nice little uh french towns it's not france because it's a fantasy world but yes it's france um make you know as you should in this kind of game making use of the environment to eke out any little tactical advantage you can because if you don't if you don't think like this and, and you don't make use of every resource and every little advantage uh, it can be quite brutal and it will utterly uh destroy you um, it's also got this like personality system so you're recruiting these there's like an element where you're back at base and you're training up new recruits and you bring these individual personalities into your team a lot of them are like the main characters who are part of the story but others uh, have, are just kind of like B characters who they've all got their own like likes and dislikes fears and hopes so you know some might be like agoraphobic so if you send them out into the open they like lose their bottle and they can't function and they just kind of freeze on the spot um there's like a race system where some people are like oh i really like blonde haired people <laughs> so right. so if you take that person and you put them on the battlefield next to another person that they're likely to to be pals with you know they'll get they'll get a little like buff um, if that's what they, happens when me and Sam stand next to each other. Exactly. <laughs> two giant men buffs. It's sparkling. Um, so, yeah, like, just a really, a really beautiful game with depths of, depth of systems, move the genre forward in a really significant way. Um, of course, it was by Sega, so nobody played it. Um, but it's it still got, like, four sequels uh, despite that. Um, and I think, um, I think a bit of a cult hit these days um it was yeah. re-released a few years ago there's like a nintendo switch version um yeah Black I don't know. chronicles 4 came out around the same time i don't know how it did on switch but i i definitely heard that it did really well on pc like they had yes i did yeah. hear off the record that they had like uh sales expectations for, actually they might have said this publicly but it just blew away their like multi-year sales expectations in like a few months or something so it really did find that XCOM kind of audience that is most likely to be interested in it. Um, yeah, so it's it's worth mentioning Valkyria Chronicles two and three were both PSP exclusives. Yeah, so it went choice. from PlayStation three 
for the first game, where it's making use of all these you know fancy graphics and an epic scale, down to PSP, where um, you know the, the the battlefields were more kind of broken up into small rooms. Uh, they doubled down on kind of persona-like relationship stuff, which slowed slowed the pace a lot. Valkyria Chronicles Three only came out in Japan, so no, like really nobody played that one. And the series was kind of dead, apart from a spin-off that nobody liked. I I think that Steam release, uh, probably spurned on by Sega's European arm, mm. I think that revived the series. I don't think there would have been a Valkyria Chronicles Four were it not for the success of that PC version. Yeah. Are you- I, do you think Valkyria Chronicles one still the one to to play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- absolutely. That that's the one to go in on. It's still just as good as the day it came out. It's still very inviting. And then if you like it, go straight to four. Yeah, it feels like that's what the numbering there might actually not be doing them some favors that it goes mm. one four. You might they might as well have given it a subtitle or something. But yeah, I um I suppose like the context to remember is that at the time the PSP was huge in Japan, so the there was mm. uh, it probably made sense like budget wise to move it onto there it is one of the great sort of mistakes of this podcast that no one picked this in the ps3 draft matthew i just completely passed me i completely forgot about it but um i made a lot of mistakes in the ps3 draft. <laughs> <laughs> you know jack and daxter collection yes to puppeteer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um yeah good pick you can tell ash from how you're talking about it that you are incredibly passionate about this game love so, it um, really love yeah. it Good pick, um, and yeah, still looks beautiful. I think as well the uh, the canvas art style. What's uh, your number seven? I think this is the first arcade game on my list. Uh, it's a game I think you two really love. It's Ghost Squad. Fucking Ooh. love Ghost Squad, mate. Love it. Excellent, excellent. Um, Sega are really well known for their light gun games, House of the Dead, Virtua Cop, Confidential Mission. All great games. I personally think Ghost Squad is the the pinnacle of the light gun genre. Uh, I think it's still a little bit underrated. It's not. It's not a household name in the way some of those others are. You know, it's not as well known as Time Crisis by by Namco. Um, but it kind of just. It's. I, I spent a lot of time this morning thinking about Ghost Squad and thinking, how am I going to articulate why this game is is great? Because on the surface, it's just another light gun game, and doesn't doesn't particularly innovate. Uh, I think its biggest innovation is that it has. Um, opportunities to take different routes yeah. through the game, depending on either decisions you make or opportunities you take, uh, which lends it a load of replayability um, and makes it quite exciting. So you never quite know what's going to happen. But I, th- I think about the you know the moment to moment gameplay and why do I love it so much? It's it, it's Sega leaning on years and years of making this kind of game and just making every small moment count um you know right down to little decisions of how many enemies in the room are in the room where are they popping out from answers a lot and everywhere (laughs) yeah well yeah everywhere they do pop out from everywhere it's quite comical actually i think on the first stage you go into a bedroom and it's and it's like it's a it's like one little bed and a desk in this bedroom and it must be like 30 soldiers that like pop out from cupboards and behind pillows yeah um, and it, you know the camera does a really good job of making you feel like you're in this 3D space. It's not it's not a shooting gallery where you're either scrolling left and right or constantly moving forward. It turns, it tilts up, it tilts down. You look under tables. Um, there's a sense of like you are actually a person in this world, even though it's um, first person. So uh, you know sometimes you'll like drop onto the floor or onto your 
side um you'll hang upside down from somewhere so it feels really dynamic and and 3d um fantastic game uh, i'd love to hear you guys talk about it a bit more um i will say um there's a, a really fantastic home version of this game on the wii mm-hmm. um uses the the wii remotes to kind of simulate a light gun you can plug it into that like plastic gun they did for the zelda game if you like you don't really need to um they they added a few unlockable extras a silly mode where it's got girls in bikinis let's just gloss over that that never happened <laughs> they're carrying bananas <laughs> instead of guns yeah um uh, and and like a, a kind of like leveling up mode that rewards you for coming back and and replaying it over and over again and for exploring all of the different routes it kind of checklists off like have you seen everything this game has to offer i think you know like 15 odd years on i still haven't seen every little detail this game has uh, which makes it quite rewarding to keep going back to yeah i think the multiple routes thing is the thing that jumps out as like the the innovation and in some ways actually i, I the last time i played this i was covid riddled in Torquay um about two two years ago i didn't know i was covid riddled at the time but um i was doomed by covid and um it is always a treat i i have when i go back to Torquay. is there is like one arcade that has a machine a cabinet mm. of this but i do also now have to untangle it a little bit from my time crisis 2 memories um because uh, that is the game I've played more recently, and I know that they've, they've both got like um, really good river set pieces mm-hmm. in them as well. So um, I have to do a bit of that. But I think what I like about it is that there is it leans into the special ops thing a little bit more. So you get like a bit where you just have to like I think you got like there's a night vision goggles bit which is really yeah. good. There's uh, like a sniper a bit where you're sort of to snipe sort of like a few uh, different guys, and then you'll get like a rocket launcher specifically to deal with like a chopper or whatever. And I think it just it maybe just um, feels a bit more sort of like inventive on the set piece side, just like chucking in like one off gameplay elements to just make that specific set piece seem exciting. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know how I'd articulate it any better really. It's just like mm. and it is the replay value of the different routes, I think. It's just it just means that when you've played Time Crisis 2 a few times, you do start you become so familiar with the beats that I think it it just, you know, you just get so used to all the ins and outs of it and I think with Ghost Squad yeah. just those multiple routes means that it never quite feels exactly the same. So, yeah. Yeah, I I I know this best from the the Wii version for sure, which I played for tens and tens of hours and yeah the branching routes and like that you had like a you you kind of leveled up and unlocked new guns and new things and that kind of persistence just uh leaning hard into yes we know this is like a 20 minute experience so you're going to play it a hundred times you know gets you over quite a big mental hurdle because like definitely when i was younger you know reading about like home like gun games or the home versions of them i love the idea but at the same time you think oh man can we really risk like one of our big game purchases this year on an hour long thing Mm. that we're just going to do over and over but yeah ghost squad just uh i mean really but you know i definitely i must have played it for like 30 40 hours on the Wii. um yeah the other thing is as well i forgot about the um this this game has the mechanic where you can like arrest some people as well um so you have to hold like hover the sort of cursor or like the light gun over the characters and it'll chuck some handcuffs on them like that that's um those sorts of one-off touches i remember from this game mm. as well but yeah, yeah. i think there's a bomb defusal bit as well it's sort yeah, of like yeah 
it's yeah i think it, i think there's a sense as well that going down those different paths just takes you to different sort of versions of those kinds of like twists on the light gun shooter it's just mm-hmm. it's like the most all-encompassing of those types of games that i've played really so uh that's yeah that's probably as best as i can do to articulate this just such a good game what's your number six number six i am looking at a copy of this game right now uh, on my shelf it's on the sega saturn um and it is signed by uh matthew's best friend Yuji Naka. <laughs> oh no. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. Nice of dreams. No, it's not. Oh. It's Burning Rangers. Okay. Oh, right. Uh one of my all time favourite games. I went back to it last night uh as as one of two games I played just to refresh my memory. Um Burning Rangers, not not a game that a lot of people have played or are aware of, so a little, a little bit of explaining will be required. It's by Sonic Team. It's from this era of Sonic Team where they didn't want to make Sonic games for some reason. Um, on you know on the Sega Saturn, they made Knights, they made Burning Rangers. That continued into the Dreamcast. They're making Choo Choo Rocket, Samba de Amigo. Yeah, they made Sonic Adventure by then. I think they've been had a slap on the wrists for it. <laughs> um, but Sonic Team were in this really like creative space where they were just making again like making the kinds of games no one had ever made before. So. Burning Rangers came out really late in the Saturn's life. It remains exclusive. Um, it is a futuristic firefighting game. So you play these kind of like uh, anime heroes uh, in a 3D game in a in a space station. Uh, they are equipped with two things. They've all got a jetpack and they've all got a laser gun that has the ability to extinguish fire. Uh, I, I can't explain why. They just do. Um <laughs> So you're ex- you're exploring these 3D space stations. Um, you have to um, find ho- uh, hostages. Uh, you have to find survivors who are, you'll find them kind of like crouched down on the floor in the space station. Um, later on in the game, after you've completed it and you replay the levels, uh, it randomizes the stages and it randomizes the locations of the people you have to rescue. So tons of replayability there. I think one of the really cool things about this game is the kind of heat system so in this in this 3d world before fire kind of like explodes out of nowhere you'll get like little warnings so you'll you might see like a panel on the floor that was gray but now it's kind of turning red and yellow as it heats up um so you've got a little visual clue of oh my god like that is about to explode and fire is about to go everywhere just before it does there'll be a little audio cue of uh, a kind of like whistling noise of of like air being sucked out of the room um and this fire will like explode in front of you and you've got a split second to kind of dexterously manipulate the controller so that you like backflip away from the fire like to react to it and if you don't like you're basically dead and restarting the game um so you know you're using the your acrobatics and these jetpacks to to react to threats in the level and then like blasting them with your laser kind of like a third person stu- shooter to to get rid of the fire uh because you're in a space station in in space the level design is very three dimensional so you've got your jetpack you have to think about what's above you and what's below you almost like um quake level design i would Mm. i would say uh you know really good 90s 3d thinking um so yeah i was playing it last night and i was thinking oh yeah this is this is a real maze uh that i'm exploring here and you just got that basic um enjoyment that you get from exploring a a 3d 
space, which um, is a bit of a lost art um, these days, I think, with things being kind of more open world. You don't really get so many games that are kind of inside a series of boxes yeah. uh, anymore. And it you know, probably wouldn't fly these days if somebody made a game like that. But there is a kind of like puzzle-like appeal to that kind of game. Um, so yeah, just something something a little bit different. Um, still has that Sega cool, like the anime design of the characters is really kind of fresh and appealing. Uh, the music, um, which I believe is done by the Daytona guy, you know, the guy who sings the Daytona theme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he he did the music to this, so there's a lot of like jazz in it. There's a there's a rap. Um, the Japanese version of the game came with a soundtrack on a on a second disc. Uh, and there's a guy uh, rapping on the soundtrack. Um, there's an immortal line on that song where he says, "Giving nightmares like Wes Craves, uh, <laughs> like like we all go around calling Wes Craven Wes Craves." <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, wonderful, quirky, cool uh, Sonic Team game. Never been released on anything else. Little bit ahead of its time, like it should have been on the Dreamcast. Really, you can see the Saturn like creaking at the edges, trying to make this fast 3D game work. Desperately needs a port. Desperately needs a remake. But very few people have played it. You don't really see people crying out for Burning Rangers in the way they do for, say, Jet Set Radio. Um, mm. But it's um, it's a great game. I, I don't I don't know if you guys have got much to say on this. Or it's going to be more about. Oh. Um, asking questions. I'm, I'm, I mainly know it from the uh, Sonic Racing level. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that there's a there's a couple of things. So I have I have looked into this game before. I can't remember what pod, what episode we did where I end up looking up looking this up. So um, the name Burning Rangers is an all time great '90s game name. Um, I yeah. will say. Um, but it also has the profile of game that Sega were quite big into getting onto the 360 onto X- Xbox Live Arcade. So it is disappointing they never they never did that because I think there's a a few from this era that did end up making that transition, but uh, yeah, this is regrettably trapped. If they I, did, I think, yeah, I, I, I was just gonna say, I, th- I do think we'll see it eventually. I think, I think the problem it had for a long time is that the the Sega Saturn is notoriously difficult to emulate, mm. um, and remaking it, you know, they, you know, they did do a remake of Knights on the 360, but I think spending money remaking Burning Rangers would have been money down the drain when Sega couldn't afford to do that. Yeah. Um, but the the emulation side, you, you know, there are a few Sega Saturn games that are now emulated. You can get them on the Switch. It, once it's cheap and easy for them to do, I, th- I think you're going to see it because I, I know there's a lot of affection for this game internally at Sega uh, and at Sonic Team. Um, you know, I've I've interviewed Yuji Naka about this game. I know he's like really really proud of it, and it, and I think they see it as this like this gem that should get more recognition. Yeah, yeah it'll happen. To your point as well about um, about Sonic Team, what they are up to at this time. So they go uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, Knights into Dreams, uh, Sonic mm-hmm. Sonic Jam, which they're technically part of, and Sonic R, which they're the co-developer of. Burning Rangers, uh, Sonic Adventure, Choo Choo Rocket, Space Channel Five, Samba de Amigo, Fantasy Star Online. Yeah, like that's that. What a, what a run that is. That's pretty amazing, really. And you know, there's completely different types of game uh, you know encompassed within all of that really it's um it's pretty impressive so they, they were yeah. they were completely on fire and i think that um i think that creative spirit i think that transferred with Yuji Naka when he went to Propay i think you know you look at what Propay were putting out 
they just didn't have the budgets that Sega had. They didn't have the console that needed supporting. So, you know, those games were much lower budget, but the creativity was still there. Things like Let's Tap, where you put the Wii Remote on a cardboard box and oh, tap the cardboard great. box. Like, that's so cool. Uh, I, Ivy the Kiwi, with a question mark in the title. Like, commercial suicide, but it's, it's the kind of, like, no, we're not going to do a Sonic game philosophy that Sonic Team had back then. Um such a shame. Uh, whatever happened to Yuji Naka, I don't know. Uh, but I, I would love if he was making some games again. Hey, that guy is like racking up an all-time great sort of like biopic story. I will say. Oh yeah. You know, just it's it's really and he's, he's really out in jail right at the moment. I don't. No, he, he's not. No, he never went to jail. That was a. Oh, I think right. that was just a, that was a joke that we made on this podcast. Oh okay. Yeah. It was, <laughs> that he was. I think he was like. He was found guilty, but just had to pay a fine or something. So something he, like he has he has a suspended sentence, which I you know I'm not a legal expert, but I believe that means he serves his time out in the world because he's not you know he's not a threat to anybody's uh, safety. But if he commits another crime in a certain amount of time, I think the consequences would be quite serious. So he, he needs to behave. Uh, okay. So what you're saying is a sequel to Ball and Wonderworld would get him back in jail? Is that basically what you're saying uh, there, Ash? <laughs> I think most of the world, except me, would consider that a crime. <laughs> I know you're a fan of that game. But uh, yeah, okay. So I do, I do hope they excavate this at some point. I would also, uh, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this, but I would like to see those Saturn games preserve with their original aesthetic because that mm-hmm. is nice you can play Knights on modern formats but it doesn't really look like Knights did on the Saturn and that specific kind of like here's the 3D we can do with this hardware is kind of why those games are quite appealing to me in retrospect you know what I mean I don't necessarily yeah. want to see them um, just restored with modern graphics so we, yeah. we really need a Saturn mini yeah. console um, and I, th- I think they considered it at one point but they ended up doing the Mega Drive Mini 2 yeah. Uh, instead, they got hit hard by the pandemic, and you know the cost of manufacturing rose so much that it made. I think they've gone on record saying this that it made doing a Saturn Mini um, it just unprofitable for them at that time. Um, but I, I, th- I think there is a little bit of a desire among them to to make that happen if they can. Mm. Uh, so, what's your number five, Ash? A GameCube game. It's Super Monkey Ball. Mm. Of course, you guys must know this one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Of course. Big Matthew game as well. Yes, so Super Monkey Ball, actually uh, it's an arcade game originally, uh, just called Monkey Ball, um, where you uh, use a banana-shaped controller uh, to guide a monkey in a ball, a bit like a hamster in a ball, um, around a series of kind of platform game mazes. You're effectively you're not really controlling the ball you're tilting the environment to to roll the ball around collect bananas try not to fall off into oblivion sending your poor little monkey to certain doom uh uh, get to the goal and then uh you know on to the next stage until you've cleared a certain number of stages to to finish the game really simple but really good fun arcade game um that translated really well to the aesthetic of GameCube, translated well to the GameCube controller. Mm. Um, that analog stick on the GameCube controller that gave you... It gave you th- full 360-degree movement, but it also had that, like, octagonal um, perimeter where you could, like, lock the stick into one of yeah. eight directions, which... What a great innovation that doesn't really seem to happen anymore for whatever reason. That made controlling 3D games really kind of... Like, it put the power in your hands uh, and worked great for Monkey Ball. Um, 
the basic kind of arcade gameplay of Monkey Ball, I think, is is still very appealing. But I think GameCube version took on this extra life more as a party game. They they threw in loads and loads of extra mini games, like different ways of playing with these monkeys in balls. There was uh, a kind of very Mario Kart light racing game where you rolled down these like half pipes. Uh, there was uh, a snooker or pool game where all the monkeys are in balls on a on a pool table um the highlight of all those mini games uh i think most people would agree is monkey target where you roll the monkey ball down a huge kind of ski slope uh there's a ramp at the end it flies into the air kind of spins through the air uh, and then you can press a button to open the ball uh, so that two halves of it form wings with your monkey dangling from them in the air and then uh, kind of glide the monkey th- uh, through the air, through little targets that are going to score you bonus points as you go through these these rings, uh, with the aim being to then aim for these islands in the sea that have um, targets with points on them. If you can close your monkey ball at the right time, land in these targets, score a load of points, taking it in turns, playing against other players, trying to get the most points. Um, just a surprisingly good fun mini game that certainly me, me and my mates, we put dozens of hours just into monkey target alone and coming up with um, our own strategies, our own skills for like how to get score multipliers, how to land in windy conditions on the tiniest of islands like using the physics to your advantage so you can stop on a dime and get like a hundred point score that's then multiplied by three because you did something right when you were in the air it became like an obsession uh to see like how much we could master this simple mini game Uh, and i don't know i don't know how much sega knew that they'd designed I think they designed a mini game that actually ended up being more important than the main game itself, and right. I don't know how much they appreciated that at the mm. time. And I, I think the evidence <laughs> of that is in the various sequels and remakes that have come along, and they've always seemed to get Monkey Target a little bit wrong afterwards. They meddle with it, and the, the mm. purity is is lost. Um, I, yeah. I would yeah, say that gone. that goes for like maybe Monkey Ball as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. they they just everything they need to sort of say with it is here in the it first is, yeah. and maybe, maybe the, the second one's still pretty good but like definitely when you get into the what happens now in monkey ball there's always so much shit i remember the one on the wii i a the, the wii remote wasn't really up up to the task i didn't think but also you know like bosses and things like that with story modes it's unnecessary just you just don't get you just don't get what made this special mm-hmm. yeah so i experienced this by playing um Super Monkey Ball Deluxe on Xbox, which combined mm-hmm. the levels from both, add all the mini games from both as well, and I think even added a few more mini games. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that at that point in my head, Monkey Target had always been the thing I wanted to play more than the main game. So while mm-hmm. I definitely dabbled with the main game, me and my little brother doing Pass the Pad on Monkey Target was almost exclusively how I I did try every single mini game as well. Some of them are definitely better than others. There's definitely a a power rankings list to be done there of the different mini games. But um, yeah, I think uh, Monkey Target is just so perfect. And yeah, yeah I sort of um, just like and it's, and it's so simple as well. And the only other place I've seen really rip it off is GTA Online. Weirdly, where they have oh. a mode where you can drive. Um, 
it the problem is because it's GTA Online, it takes ages to actually like load into it. But you drive a car off of a ramp, and then you have like um, you have a parachute pop off, and then you have to just land your car on the target. And so it's the only time I've ever seen that pop up anywhere else. It's, ah, that's interesting. But, yeah, I've yeah, never, never yeah. played that, which won't surprise you at all. <laughs> um, I think the the crash mode in Burnout um, owes a little bit to Monkey Target as well. It's a, it's a different sort of thing, but it's it, the score attack elements there. There was also in Game and Wario on Wii U. There was oh, yes. islands, which it's slightly different in that you're sort of throwing, you know, handfuls of stuff onto a floating island, but had a little bit of that, like I don't know, almost like ballsy kind of uh, mm-hmm. trickery of trying to land closer to something and fucking stuff up on subsequent turns. And uh, yeah. yeah, there's, I, there's I, something I, about taking it in turns on these games yeah. where it half of the game is you watching how the other person does yeah uh, absolutely and, yeah, and yeah. T- taking delight in them screwing it up yeah. or being amazed when they pull off something incredible yeah mm. sure I'm, i just read about uh, something called bonito days on uh, switch which came out a few years ago mm. and it's basically a whole game built around monkey target so uh i don't know if i can be bothered with that but um certainly yeah it's a it, pretty amazing that as a mini game it kind of overwrote the narrative of the main game but um, exactly i don't think yeah. that's ever happened anywhere else so yeah okay great uh that's a, a worthy pick so what's your number are we on five now ash or four Come we on. are going into number four this is an arcade game originally but i would argue the dreamcast version is far superior and that is crazy taxi this is this is the one this is where we're going to get into it but uh, we like Crazy Taxi here. <laughs> this has been established. I, I do have questions for you about the other two, though, and how you feel about those. But um, no, there were two uh, Crazy yeah. Taxis. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Give your uh, top uh, line then on this one. Okay, Crazy Crazy Taxi. Uh, does, does anyone need this game explaining to them? Uh, you <laughs> um, run a taxi in in a city. Uh, you pick up uh, customers who will um, hop into your convertible taxi, and they'll say things like "Take me to Pizza Hut" or "Take me to Tower Records," and you have a big arrow that tells you where to drive at high speed. The faster you get there, the more money you're going to make. You're also against the clock, so you can run out of time and it's it's game over. Um, if you get there by um, playing in a crazy way, uh, so you do lots of power slides and jumps, you will earn more cash. If you weave between the traffic, scraping kind of really close to them without hitting them, then you'll rack up loads of extra dollars as well. Think, think the way, like Burnout 2, uh, works to reference another game that's now ancient and probably a lot of people haven't played. The, it, a, a fantastic kind of marriage, in my opinion, of uh, over-the-top accessible thrills and uh, a skill-based depth. Like anyone can pick up and play Crazy Taxi and have a really good time in a couple of minutes. Uh, but the Sega heads, much like the Monkey Target stuff, will start to get obsessed with their strategies and their skills obsessed with manipulating the handbrake and the accelerator to do uh, a crazy dash which will you know give you a boost and net you more points or a crazy back dash so you can reverse really quickly and turn around uh, lots of hidden depth uh, to this game that gives it a a longevity like uh, something we kind of touched upon a, a, before about sega games a lot of sega arcade games you you might only play for five or ten minutes, but I've been playing them for five or ten minutes consistently for decades. Right now, um, you know, and I, if I crack out my Dreamcast, I'm not going to sit down and play Shenmue 
again but i will play crazy taxi again so you, you just keep coming back for more same way you guys have been back to ghost squad mm. again because you 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 know like you you when you're playing retro systems unless you're really dedicated you're not going to put dozens of hours into an old game you've played before mm. but 10 10 minutes of course you will mm. do that um and I, th- I think crazy taxi is is a great 10 minute game it's there in front of you i, I don't think most people could resist uh, we've got to talk about the music uh so it had licensed music from the offspring and bad religion probably only about five or six tracks in total so these same tracks kind of get like stuck in your head but it contributed to this kind of late 90s punk rock cool uh that suits sega so well and is you know it's very much of its time like it suits the dreamcast so well uh later versions stripped out that music for licensing reasons and replaced it with generic rock um later versions also took out the um the kind of real world locations like the shops and restaurants that you needed to go to pizza hut. um pizza hut um and it always feels a little bit lesser for for those things not being included uh but the heart of the game the the mechanics uh, the the score attack the speed that's there in every version of the game and i, I think it's i think it's a wonderful example of te- sega taking their arcade racing expertise and plonking it into a different sort of game like it it doesn't surprise me that their big kind of comeback uh marketing this year is really centered around a new crazy taxi because there's still in my opinion lots of depth and lots of enjoyment to be had from that game what modern brands could they put in the new crazy taxi that would kind of be in keeping with the spirit of the poundland (laughs) greg's obviously (laughs) (laughs) bet fred uh you know (laughs) things you see in destitute towns in the uk um yeah it's uh it's the works Yeah, it's uh, it's I I love Crazy Taxi, and you know just to, to kind of put it in context as well, when I was a a kid, like this was considered cool as well. It was a game that yeah. the music obviously was a big part of that, but so was the aesthetic. I mean, that uh, the Californication music video by Red Hot Chili Peppers, surely that doesn't exist without Crazy Taxi. Like the aesthetic of that is pure crazy taxi that sort of like mm. vivid sort of like you know sort of like outside of looking in sort of america you know hyper real depiction of america is surely what they're riffing on in that video but yeah i think i agree as well though ash like it weirdly has frame rate problems in the arcade version like it doesn't quite run that well but ah, con- so yeah I, I should i should qualify that statement right so that I, I, I've encountered the arcade version quite a few times you, there's actually quite a few machines in the uk you can find it at like arcade club and stuff like that mm. Because it's an arcade game, it uses a steering wheel and pedals, uh, as you'd expect. You know, it's an ar- arcade racing game, of course, but it works so much better on a controller because to play Crazy Taxi really well, you have to be really nimble with your play. And being being nimble, like you know, turning really quickly, reacting to what's going on, um, very quickly moving from like handbrake to accelerator. Um, you can do that with digital buttons. You just, you know, you just quickly kind of slide your thumb from one button to another. Um, with a little analog stick on the Dreamcast, you can you, you can go from left to right in an instant. But turning a big wheel or moving your legs, it just slows everything down. And I, I, 
all of the same mechanics are in there on the arcade version, but you will you will fail, like you you will perform worse in the arcade version of the game, and it 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 maintains all of the kind of fun and cool, but it loses the the depth of the score attack experience, even though it's the original version. It's a really strange example. I don't think there's many examples of games where the arcade version feels flawed compared to the later home versions. Mm. Um, so yeah, don't bother with the arcade version. Don't go out there hunting for it. It was a great but, thing to encounter in like the early noughties though. It was just like Oh yeah, it looks when, cool. It does look cool and it really was everywhere in the UK. Like it was maybe like the last persistently available arcade machine that you could find in not in every town, but like, you know, every city at least. So mm. yeah, it's uh yeah, okay. Well, I, I agree a good pick. So the sequels then, like what is the deal with two and three? Because I never I never played those. Um but yeah. I know three has a really bad reputation. Two I think was kind of seen as more of the same, but I don't know much about it. I don't care for them. Um, Crazy Taxi 2, I don't know if there's an arcade version, it came out on the Dreamcast. It's set in New York, um, which means the level design is quite flat and grid-based, which just just doesn't suit this game at all. Like The first one is in a kind of like San Francisco, basically. So you get the you get the huge hill at the start with the trams on it. As you get to the bottom, you're going past the the beach and then up into the shops, up another hill, and there's a church. Like and you 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 you're kind of naturally jumping by speeding over the environment and, and going off ramps. And then you're in the sequel. You're just in this flat grid of a city. They added a jump button, which only feels necessary because the New York level design has these like tiny little walls and tiny little fences that if you can't hop over them would completely slow your progress. And it just just feels really flawed to me in that they, they picked the wrong environment to for, for this kind of game. Um, they address that a little bit in Crazy Taxi 3. It's set in Las Vegas, but it's like a weird version of Las Vegas that doesn't exist with artificial hills and and ramps so it's got more of that verticality to it um but it's it's quite forgettable it doesn't have the same sense of cool it doesn't have the 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 same great music um it came out on the xbox crazy taxi 3 um edge cover if i remember right did it have an edge cover that's incredible i think so yeah um yeah it's just so forgettable i can't really go into detail about why it failed because i've forgotten it (laughs) <laughs> that's fair enough i think uh yeah in some ways as well i think it was a formula that had a, a sort of a shelf life um you can only really do so many things with it so uh yeah um i, I should also state i don't think crazy taxi is a bad game <laughs> I, oh no you, you do you do think it's a bad game or you don't no i don't no i all don't right, okay. no i don't all, all, all i was saying you know at the time you know you would encounter this in an arcade and not to sound like a broken record this was at a time when you know, we'd only have a couple of games added to our collection every year. And when you have experienced this and you have an idea of it from the arcade, the idea of, well, do we want that very small, bitty experience as, like, one of the only things we can do? You know, mm. that I just think that, that way of thinking was more prevalent back then. Um, and it sort of stuck. You know, obviously now when things are, you know, a bit cheaper or more readily available, I think we can all be a bit more open to these ideas yeah. and appreciate things 
on on their own terms a lot better and i just think there's there's more of a sophisticated appreciation of the arcade sensibility like yeah a little bit more in the mainstream now than than there maybe was 20 years ago uh, I, I, w- I will uh, i think it's worth me going into a little bit of detail about why i think the arcade mechanics give this game longevity for for the people who do do dig into it and and experience the the depth that it has so it's all about the um the timer so there's a there's a very strict uh, clock in the game once that clock runs down it's game over um that can be quite frustrating because you 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 want to see more of this city you want to push further and see more of it um if you push far enough you actually discover that this city is a loop so if you play really well you can you can loop around and do do circuits of it uh, but in order to do that it's all about um adding seconds onto the clock so if you get a passenger to their destination in like record time like ahead of their expectation as a bonus they will add you um either two or five, depending on how well you do, bonus seconds onto your clock. Um, so a really good player will keep topping up their time and it gives and it and you can play for, for longer. Um, that I think that gives Crazy Taxi a longevity that certainly kept me playing for, for years. Uh, because you're continuously like honing your skills, the better you get at this game, the more of it you can enjoy and experience the next time you return to it. Um, but that only works if you're already kind of bought into it, right? And I think the people who are probably most bought into it are the people who either only had a Dreamcast or the Dreamcast was their primary system. So they were they were quite comfortable buying these arcade games, knowing that they were gonna they were gonna put the hours into them. Um, the trouble is, it existed at a time when people had Nintendo 64s and they were playing Majora's Mask and Grand Theft Auto 3 on the PS2. I think if you were more of a multi-format gamer, I can see how you'd be like, oh, well, yeah, do I, you know, I can buy one game this month. Am I going to buy the 100-hour game or the 10-minute game? Mm. Mm. Okay, well, that makes sense, Ash. Yeah. So, what's your number three? Number three is... It's a Yuji Naka game. It's on the Saturn. It is it's nice. not. It's not Nights into Dreams. Oh, it is Christmas Nights. Oh. Ah. <laughs> um, Come on, right. got to rule good. <laughs> let's start. Let's start with you guys because obviously you've got feelings on Nights. What, no, what are they? I, I have no real problem with, a problem with Nights. This is more of a Matthew concern. I don't. I don't really. I, I don't really. I, I kind of get why the formula sort of like is is good sega design like the 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 sort of like core loop of it is is quite fun but it's just not it doesn't have as much longevity to me as like sonic does as a formula for example but uh, what about you matthew i i just just don't click i just don't click or particularly see the fun in the in the kind of looping mechanic maybe i don't quite understand elements of this game but <laughs> i re- i remember having to sort of get into nights to be you know to cover the the wii version of it and mm. i was like i do not get what the fuss is about this thing like it didn't make any sense to me i mean mechanics aside i just i i hate the world of it i hate the really cloying kind of sort of child sort of childy kind of childlike dream element of it um 
I, I find it incredibly naff and um, traditionally suspicious of people who are into it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but go on, Ash. <laughs> but, but, okay, right. But I'm, 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 never, I'm, I'm now on trial. I've someone properly explain the appeal to them, so please. Okay, <laughs> I, I will. Um, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a very divisive game, and I think you know it, it, it's part of a narrative of Sega at the time of like, oh, this is what you've made instead of a new Sonic game. Like, are are you insane? Um, I, I remember, you know, my same mate who keeps asking for a new Golden Axe. I remember him watching me play Knights and then saying to me, you are the only person in the world who both likes and understands this game. Right. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are, like, instantly turned off uh, by this game. I was a big um, CVG reader at the time. Um, Computer and Video Games magazine in the 90s were, were kind of huge tastemakers for me and i i remember they used to bang on about knights all the time and i'd kind of i'd absorbed their opinions on knights before i'd even played it and i think that primed me for it so they they had a real appreciation for the score attack element of the game um very similar to crazy taxi actually in that a lot of the game is about making uh loops and combos around a circuit like platform game world um so it looks like a 3D platformer, but really you're going from left to right like you would in Sonic. But instead of running along the ground, you are kind of gracefully flying through the air as this uh, dream-like manifestation called Knights. Um, so it's you know it's within your power to basically steer this character as it flies to the to the right. Uh, you have a boost button that you think you, so that you can go faster. Um, if you want to, you can play in a very simple way. Uh, there's You have to collect uh, what are called idea balls, which is a strange name. Um, you have to collect uh, 30 of these balls as you make a circuit around the stage. Once you do that, the circuit changes, so you're still on the same 3D world, but your flight path around it is a different kind of almost like racing game circuit. Mm. Uh, you do that, uh, I think, three or four times, and it's off to a boss battle. Um you, you can play that very simply if you want. Collect the balls, do the circuits, uh, get to the end of the, the game, uh, and you'll, you, you, you may or may not have a pretty good time just doing that. Um, but then it's got that Sega arcade score attack depth of, like, you know, there's a high score at the end of each, each stage. And the way to get a high score is there are various kind of rings in the air that you, uh, that you can fly knights through, um, and if you do that, it will take her on a kind of more of a kind of roller coaster route. So you're having to like tilt up, tilt down, swirl around to to kind of slalom your way through all of these rings. Um, and you get uh, bonus points for each ring that you go through, and then that bonus point will appear on the screen. And it's kind of like ticking down. You've only got a certain number of seconds before you have to combo into the next ring. If you don't get to the next ring in time, you lose that combo streak. So if you can make a perfect loop through the game, going through every single ring, which is very challenging to do, then that's where you're going to score really big. And it does that Japanese game thing of, yes, you get a numerical score, but what does a number mean? Nobody knows. So it will also give you a grade D, C, B, A, S. I don't know why Japanese games give you an S, but S is like the best you can get. So it really clearly communicates to you objectively how well 
have you done should you be going back and retrying and mastering this stage uh, and I think as as is a theme for this episode of the podcast that style of play is never going to be for everyone it takes mm. a certain mindset um, I grew up playing games uh, in the arcade the, the long stretches of my youth where I didn't really have a modern games console but I was in the arcade so it's kind of like bred for this kind of play and like I said I was I was reading CBG magazine I remember like Paul Davies and Ed Lomas and Tom Guise all these personalities that I looked in, up to in the mags were like raving about knights and sharing their like strategies and hints and super guides on how to do well at this game so it's very much a like time and place of mm. being in, embedded in a, like a score attack culture that that helped me enjoy this game um now i feel bad that the uh the games magazine readers of 2008 had to deal with (laughs) clowns like me going well i don't really know what the deal is it seems a bit shit (laughs) that situation wasn't helped by the fact that knight's journey of dreams on the wii was an absolute trash fire it it doesn't capture any of the things (laughs) that are great about i'm glad i hadn't like missed a secret wii classic no it's 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 very bad um so uh, worth mentioning as well i it's a matter of taste, of course, but I do really like that that dreamlike world okay. of of knights. Uh, it's got this conceit of you're playing as one of two kids, Claris or Elliot, um, literally like little kids. You do start off the game in a 3D kind of Mario 64 like play, but you 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 only do that very briefly. So you kind of like walk up the hill in 3D. You see knights, who's this like dreamlike jester flying figure. You kind of bond with her and then you fly around. If while you're flying around you get hit by too many enemies, um, that kind of bonding separates and Clarice or Elliot will separate from knights and like fall to the ground and you're back in the 3D world again. There's not much reward for doing that. There's no real reason to explore. It's more run up the hill and get back to knights before you lose all your time and, and, your, and your combos. And I think, I think that's on reflection. That's probably the element of the game where it, it was more open to criticism because this was a time when Mario sixty four existed right. and was an awesome three D platform game. And here's Sega with a three D world where they're forcing you to play it on rails and play it in a two D way, which uh, just wasn't what people wanted mm. at the time at, at large. So, you know, ju- just to just to explain why I've got Christmas Nights in here more than Nights into Dreams. Mm. Uh, Christmas Nights was a free version of Nights that was given away to uh, Sega fans if you bought a console or you bought Sega Saturn magazine. Uh, it was essentially a demo for the main game, but they skinned it with, with the Christmas theme and played Jingle Bells o- over yeah. the top. Um, we always love cool- that on the back page. <laughs> <laughs> um, a pretty cool giveaway. Um, but what made this game really cool was every time you completed the demo, you could open your presents, um, and there you played a game of pairs, and if you succeeded in the pairs, it opened a present, and the present might be an image gallery to look at, or it might be something more interesting, like a karaoke mode, where you could sing along to one of the, the tunes in the game, or it might be a version of the demo where you could play as Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, so you could actually get to play Sonic the Hedgehog in 3D on, on, on your Saturn, which was a bit of a rare treat. Um, Christmas Nights, uh, I've played it every Christmas since it came out. It's a, it's a bit of a lifelong habit for me. So 
uh, a really kind of cherished and beloved strange version of a strange game. Hmm. Yeah, interesting pick, and uh, probably more universally played than the main game. So, uh, uh, just from the way it was given away. So, uh, I think yeah, so. I'm sure a lot of Sega fans out there have a similar experience. So, what's your number two, Ash? Number two is my favourite game of all time, Shining Force Three. <laughs> uh, this is a tactical RPG on the Sega Saturn. Uh, you can debate whether this is a Sega game or not, but it's a Sega IP published by Sega, developed by Camelot who um, were formerly Sonic Software Planning. It's a Sega game, it's on the list. Um, What makes this game special? It's got everything that's great about the tactical RPG genre, you know, the positioning, the the, the tactics, the the levelling up of the characters, adding loads and loads of characters. Every time you get a new character, your, your force feels more kind of eclectic and wonderful. But they just they just took it to an epic scale. Um, you to really appreciate this game, you have to play the Japanese version. You have to get the fan translations. What they did was they they released this game over three separate chapters that were released on individual discs about six months apart from each other. So you play through an entire like thirty or forty hour RPG in on the first disc. It's a complete game. It has its own climax and ending. Uh, playing as this um, army in like a, a, a civil, essentially a civil war, and then in the second game you play as the opposing side, and you see the same story from the other side's perspective to the point where even some of the same uh, dialogue is experienced, some of the same uh, meetings you you will see them from the opposite side. It does that RPG thing that a lot of people hate, where the main protagonist is silent, and whenever they speak, you get a a, a dot, dot, dot. I know a lot of people hate that, but it works really well in this game, because when you play the second chapter, it fills in the blanks, and you get to see what the dot, dot, dots were actually saying, and it gives you this new perspective on somebody who was previously your hero. Um, of course, as you might expect from this kind of game, um, there's a reason to show things from both sides, and you start to appreciate that. Oh, both sides kind of have a point, and you know, you know, war's bad. Uh, there's there's no real reason for these people to be fighting each other. Um, third chapter, both of these forces team up and they fight the real villains who are who are real uh, evil baddies. Um, I don't I don't feel like there's been many attempts in the history of video games and RPGs to tell a story on that kind of scale and link sequels together probably the closest thing ever since is mass effect which was really ambitious with with the the way it it kind of took your progress and carried it over into another game but obviously it's in a more of a western rpg style um so this is a very personal pick uh for me i think it came along at the, the the right time um and just kind of blew me away with its depth and its possibilities uh i need to, but, I need to play this thing I, I, yeah, it's it's hard to get into because it's never been re-released. You kind of need to emulate it. You need to get the fan translations. But if you love tactical games, if you like Final Fantasy Tactics or Fire Emblem, uh, you, you're going to have an amazing time with this game. And if you like Golden Sun, yeah, it, well, Golden here's Sun here's a similar, Camelot game for you. The one and two of Golden Sun have a similar narrative flip like that, with uh, mm. sort of the antagonists of the first game and the kind of leads in the second game, if I remember correctly. It does, yes, yeah. yeah, very much a, two, a two-parter. Damn, this, uh, yeah, I, I always wanted to play this because it's a really beautiful-looking game as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I can see why this, uh, why this has so much appeal. What a shame they haven't salvaged it, but it does seem like there's quite a 
active fan base around the series ash who are determined to like get it get those extra scenarios that have been fan translated into people's hands so uh, exactly yeah, yeah you've, you've got to play the whole trilogy don't you know don't be afraid of emulating and playing fan translations you're not ripping off sega by doing this i don't think they care like just play it the way it's meant to be played that's good uh, don't worry about the law uh, listen to ashley day he is listen to me and yuji naka the law doesn't matter Everything we know about the lore of this podcast was learned from the Ace Attorney series anyway, so that's fine. Uh, what's your number one then, Ash? Uh, number one, it's an arcade game. I think this is the definitive Sega game. You you can learn everything you need to know about Sega from playing this game, and it's Outrun 2. Um, I couldn't not have a racing game on this list. Um, Outrun 2 is the one, I think, you know, it's, it's about 20 years old now, and it has just lived and lived and lived. There are so many different variations of it that keep improving on the core gameplay i think you're going to any surviving arcade these days you're probably going to see an outrun 2 cab and there's a reason for that it's just an instant pleasure uh, to play um it, it took what was great about outrun 1 which was taking the racing game off the circuit and making it more of an a to b journey uh, with multiple routes so that at the end of every leg of the race you get to decide whether to go left or right and that takes you to an entirely new environment uh, move through five of those in the time limit and you win the game brilliant um, what made outrun 2 um, so fantastic and took this to the next level was the philosophy of design behind it which was Yu suzuki saying we're going to take this game that's about a journey and we're going to make it into a beautiful journey. That was that was the kind of slogan for the development of Outrun 2, a, a beautiful journey. So, the, you know, they use the modern 3D hardware of the time to, to make every location that you drive through this kind of picturesque um, place that that is deserving of a, an open-top convertible Ferrari. Uh, I know Yu Suzuki is a big car head and he spent loads of time driving around mountains and lakes in Europe to, to research this game and it really shows like every element of it is it's just a pleasure to drive through and the way you drive through something you couldn't do in Outrun 1 is these power slides that had become really popular in Japanese racing games at the time endlessly drifting around big corners kind of sliding your car on the road and weaving between traffic it just makes you feel really cool when you when you play it in the right way and it's not difficult to do i don't think outland 2 is a difficult game at all and that's to that's to its credit it just means anyone can sit down at this game and they can you know they're taken away from reality for a few minutes and they can just ex- experience kind of pure pleasure like i don't i don't i don't feel the need to talk about um any in-depth mechanics this you know there's a bit of a score attack element to outrun but not in the way we've talked about with these other games you don't have to dig into it and obsess over it you just enjoy it enjoy the music enjoy the graphics enjoy sliding around what a wonderful game you guys must know this game yeah yeah, yeah. i know it more as outrun 2006 uh, mm-hmm. i suppose um is the way to put it and i kind of understand that like it is considered the sort of one of the true modern classics from sega um so yeah i, I played this really enjoy it just like beautiful feels great in the hands played on psp actually um mm. and is a like notoriously good psp port but i think a lot of people these days are big on like the um emulating the original xbox one and kind of like blowing that up and it, it still just looks really crisp up up close mm. and also the um 
the PC version of 2006 as well that I, you can no longer get hold of. People kind of covered that as well. So yeah, beautiful. Uh, I can see why it's sort of like it, it summarizes it. You know, brings into sort of sharp relief all of the the great elements of a Sega game. What about you, Matthew? Uh, yeah, uh, little bits here and there. It's not a game I've, I've ever owned. Um, you know, I know how important it is to people. Kind of surprised this wasn't in the the the, the revamped collection that they're doing. Um, I you know I don't know how how big it is as a as a sort of going concern, but you know based on its reputation, you'd think it, this might have been one of the ones in the mix. I I do have thoughts on that. Part of the licensing is is tricky because uh, Ferraris are such a major component of of the game. You need you need to have that licensing in there. If you and if you don't, it's a little bit like taking the music out of Crazy Taxi, right? Um, and uh, you know. My, my mates and I were talking about this the other day. Like, what would you do with an Outrun three? How do you build on top of Outrun two? How do you build upon perfection? Uh, quite frankly, I, ju- I I think that's a, such an, an intimidating design challenge. I'm I'm I I bet they've thought about it and avoided it so many times. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You get you occasionally get little bursts of sort of other open world racing games which seem to be channeling a bit of this like there's always mm. a race in a forza horizon going down like uh, you know <clears throat> beachy highways that feels like it's trying to tap into a bit of that never with the same uh, sort of purity or simplicity i guess but um you know the the, the fondness for it you'd, you'd hope would somehow manifest as a as another outing at some point. Yeah, so Horizon Chase Turbo kind of riffing on this. Uh, Ash, that's kind of Horizon, Horizon Chase is more riffing on the original Outrun. To be right. honest, it's more more of that like two D sprite based gameplay. It's a it's a great game, but in my opinion, doesn't hold a candle to Outrun Two. Um, I think I think it's it's really sad that there that there isn't an Outrun Two you can play on modern hardware very easily. Mm. There's no official release on Switch or Xbox. Um, but it is still out there in a, in a lot of arcades. Um, I'll just quickly talk about the fact that there are loads of different versions of this game. Outrun 2 SP is is the one everyone really loves. It's just a revamped version of Outrun 2 that doesn't punish you for crashing into other cars. Nice. Um, there's Outrun 2 SP DX, which you might have seen, where it's got two full-size cars you can sit in uh, and it it has the gimmick of um, two of you can sit in one car and you've both got a steering wheel and it will dynamically swap control from one player to another so you can kind of co-op outrun two while also racing against another pair of friends that's kind of like the the ultimate realization of what arcades should be doing Um, and then you know the home versions outrun 2 on xbox added online play and had like bonus tracks from daytona and scud race which never got a home version really cool and outrun 2006 is the like sumo digital developed kind of let's take outrun and make it more of a console experience by giving you loads of challenges and different routes through through the game you kind of level up in a gran turismo way i think that's the version to play if you want to spend a lot of time enjoying outrun you know for like you know that's the 30 hour outrun game if you want it really Mm. cool i i bought a ps2 version a few weeks ago five quid like it's it's not expensive Mm. okay well that's uh, that's the thing actually as well is that knowing there is like 
there are these several different versions out there it does make it slightly harder in your head to nail down so it's nice to have a recommendation there but uh yeah very much enjoy what i played it the first i think it's might be the first game i ever stole from the imagine officers was outright <laughs> on psp so uh, that's a good theft be a be- beautiful memory so a, a noble theft it's okay you're not, you're not gonna go to jail for that one <laughs> much like uh, pirating uh shining force three yes yeah. uh, ash permits it it's fine Okay, well, thanks so much, Ash. That was a you know great list. You really sort of like uh, covered a lot of genres there. It was uh, comprehensive. Um, no My Ast- pleasure. No Astro Boy Omega Factor in there, of course, which I'm obviously oh. furious about. But uh, <laughs> so it goes. Um, where can people find your blog again, Ash? Just to remind people. If you search for games from the black hole, uh, you're going to find it. I don't think there's anyone else using a name that strange out there. Um, next game I'll be covering on there it's not a Sega game but it is a tactical RPG, it's Konami's Vandal Hearts, uh, so please look out for that. Nice, and where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm still on X uh, for now uh, Jelly Scare on there um, I'm not really anywhere else to be oh. honest. Do you remember how disappointed you were that we, I emailed jellyscare at gmail.com thinking that was your email address <laughs> to get you on the Christmas special episode and then it turned out that I had lazily assumed that was your email without actually checking and then emailed someone we don't know, um, basically asking them if they want to be on the pod. So that's why Ash wasn't on the Christmas special last I, year. The, the only thing I'm really disappointed about there is that nobody replied and, yes. and you didn't have a, a, a message from a stranger on your personal <laughs> episode. We have ding dong and it's like uh, hi, it's uh, Jeff here. You emailed me about the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Good time. So yes, that's why Ash was on that episode. But um, yes, uh, cool. Uh, Matthew, where can people find you? Uh, Mr. Basil Pesto, Mr. Basil underscore Pesto on uh, Twitter, and Mr. Basil under Pesto. Oh fuck it, Mr. Basil Pesto no underscore on the other blue sky. Oh, that's it. The back page drinking game. Will Will Matthew bring up his Blue Sky account on every episode? Drink, drink. <laughs> uh, I'm Samuel W. Roberts. The podcast is Backpage Pod and it's patreon.com slash Backpage Pod if you'd like to support us. Don't worry, we're going to chuck Ash 80 quid for his fine work on this episode. Uh, what a rich man he will be. Um, Ash, it's always <laughs> a pleasure, though. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, it's been great. No doubt we'll have you on again uh, soon. So uh, thank you. And, Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.